Chapter 22, Future. Late June. Summer. Something so magnificent that I recognized it even without any specific memories returning to me. The intoxicating, hazy way the balmy air enveloped me, the way it brought with it fresh, vivid colors and breathed exuberance and newfound energy into everything that lived was something that I would know anyway, as if the golden warmth had carved itself into my very soul. Drums crashing, horns blaring, soaring voices, summer was here, and it demanded to be revered. With its arrival, the clock on all of the surrounding life seemed to reset and then burst, thrumming and undulating and igniting into vibrancy, and with it, so did I. Familiar aromas filled the atmosphere, clipped grass and charcoal and sunscreen and the metallic smell of light rain. Daylight stretched on almost endlessly, reaching into the hours of the early evening, melting into popsicle-colored sunsets unto starry, clear nights set to the tune of the cricket's song. I had already been living once again for many weeks now. But when summer began, that was when I had begun to feel truly alive. I welcomed summertime back to me like an old friend, beckoning it to wrap me in its bewitching embrace and never let me go. And with summer's arrival, the process of finding who I was began to seem to come easier to me. As we showed more positive signs of healing and feeling at home within our home again, and after a couple of weeks of private family counseling, the Professor began to give us more leeway. I think seeing us returning to our normal behaviors again was enough to reassure him that we could have more time out of the house without him, and more time to pursue what we liked to do without him having to hover over us and worry. So in turn, during my summer days, I spent much of my time reading. I read in the kitchen in the mornings as I ate breakfast. Then I would grab my book and sit out in the backyard in one of the lawn chairs, reading for hours. And then I would come back inside for lunch, reading as I ate, and I would return to the backyard lawn chair, playing the indie radio station on my portable mini radio with a cold drink by my side, which often was forgotten for long periods of time, resulting in all of the ice melting and turning my drink watery. I tried a handful of times to revive the cold drinks by using my ice breath on them, but it only resulted in the whole thing getting frozen solid, rendering it completely undrinkable unless I licked it like a giant ice pop. Sometimes I would even decide to take a break here and there and catnap outside with the book over my face like a little face tent. But sometimes the heat on the rest of my body would get to be mildly uncomfortable, even though I wore breezy maxi dresses every day. Thankfully I was invulnerable to sunburn, and the worst I ended up with were weird tan lines. But then I would go inside, get a bowl of ice cream and see what one of the others were doing. Most days, Bubbles was either sunbathing on the roof or out shopping in small suburban shopping centers, and Buttercup was either binge watching her favorite cable show filled with her three favorite things, violence, gore, and sex, or she was working out, or napping in her dark cave room. These days were wonderful. But summer nights, those were my favorite. My favorite thing to do during warm summer nights was to fly to the top of the house, sitting on top of the roof, and looking out at the stars. Sometimes I would grab Bubbles, too, and we would stargaze together. This reminds me of something, Bubbles would tell me, without fail, every single time. And every time, I would look over at her, analyze her face. She always looked like she was deep in thought, frowning. Every time, I would respond, have you remembered what it is yet? Every time, Bubbles would sigh. A sigh that sounded sad and frustrated. 
And then she would say, shaking her head, not yet. And then I would look up at the sky too, and the many, many stars, wondering what it was that stargazing reminded her of. Wondering why I, too, felt like there was something the night sky reminded me of. I stared hard at the boy in the photo. That red-eyed boy I met in the basement that professor had said was so important to me. I still regularly thought about that strange moment, meeting those boys. Even though it had been almost four weeks since it happened. I played that meeting over and over in my head, several times a day. Admittedly, I had become sort of consumed by thinking of it. I couldn't get over how unsettling it had been. The weirdest part, though, had been after the boys had been escorted out of the house. Professor had come back, letting us out of the containment chamber, and he had begun asking us questions. Questions like, did any of you recognize them, and, have any of you had memories with those faces in them? At all? And when we'd answered in the negative, he'd looked, dismayed. After that, when it was our turn to ask questions, the only thing he told us was that they were called the Rowdy Rough Brothers. And then, looking distressed, he had locked himself in his office, the rest of the evening. The next day, though, he'd brought us the old magazines and tabloids. Stacks and stacks of them bound together with long rubber bands. Professor said, vaguely, that we would find pictures of these Rowdy Rough Brothers in them. He said that these brothers were very important to us and very important to remember. He then told my sisters and I that, as a part of our daily memory refreshing therapy with the VHS tapes, we were to also go through a few of the magazines and tabloids at least once a day, and so once a day, I did. And every day I sat and looked at photos of this strange red-eyed boy on random pages of these old tabloids and magazines, except for the pages that, oddly enough, had been removed. Professor hadn't even tried to hide that he had removed a large volume of them, whole chunks of articles and entire pages were neatly cut out. Even parts of some pictures were cut out, some even cut straight down the middle, right in half. After four weeks of staring down at half-complete pictures of three strange boys that I didn't remember, along with starting with dissatisfaction and suspicion at the multiple pages that should have been there, I eventually decided I'd had enough. I had spent enough time wondering what it was that the professor had tried to hide from us. So today, I had decided to go on the internet and search all three brothers' names to see what came up. We had been somewhat barred from the internet for the past couple months, professor had claimed that the media still hadn't let up and that the internet comments about us were horrifying. He also said that our social media accounts were still a mess, even mentioning that apparently buttercups had been hacked weeks ago. I had taken his word for it, considering I hadn't even remembered that we had social media accounts. I didn't think I was supposed to be googling things either, but I figured that professor would get over it eventually. After all, what would I possibly find? So in the end, I'd typed in Rowdy Rough Boys and hit enter. Now, 20 minutes after beginning my search, I was still staring open-mouthed at the results. The red-eyed one, he seemed to be a bad guy, or maybe he used to be. All the articles about him and his brothers destroying things or robbing things, or whatever else they'd gotten busted for, by my sisters and I, of course, they were all old. I'd skimmed through as many as I could. The newest ones about them of the villainous nature were from about four years ago. They seemed to have turned over a new leaf more recently, though I hadn't looked into why yet. The old articles rang some bells for me. 
I did recall constant fights with some kids who had superpowers, just like ours, that was them, I realized. They also, I realized after reading one particular article, had belonged to him and Mojo Jojo, who of course I remembered, considering one of the two lived as professor's laboratory chimp permanently now. I was a little more informed now. But aside from the pages and pictures professor ripped out of the magazines about them, there was one more thing I couldn't quite understand. Why had the professor said they were important to us? If they were just more run-of-the-mill bad guys with superpowers that we protected ordinary people from, why on earth would that give them any real importance to us whatsoever? I studied more pictures of them. Pictures of one of them, the one with black hair, Butch, as he held up a police officer by the collar of his uniform, his own feet levitating several feet off of the ground. Butch had malicious laughter on his face as he looked with amusement at the terrified officer's fear. I clicked through to the next picture. This time it was the blonde one, Boomer, looking several years younger than he had in other pictures, maybe 13 or 14, flying away from whoever took the picture on a cell phone, pockets overflowing with dollar bills, and each hand clenched around a wallet that I seriously doubted were his. I clicked through to the next few pictures, and they varied, one was a very distant, low-resolution picture of the three of them flying over downtown after another heist, burning streaks of red, dark blue, and dark green following them. Next was a collection of three of their mugshots, only three of many I guessed, and they looked very young in them, eleven, maybe? The age would explain why they looked like wacky school photos, with mischievous toothy grins and mid-raspberries and pig noses. The next one I clicked to was an up-close paparazzi shot of the leader of the rowdy rough boys himself, the one I had sought to find out more about in the first place, Brick. His red eyes were locked directly onto the camera lens, fiery and angry, and front and center in the picture was his middle finger. His eyes felt like they were staring me down directly. Something deep in my chest shifted. Fear, surely. Or something very like it. And just as every other time I looked at a picture of him, I felt a tug in my mind. A tug of recognition. But aside from my very few, very fuzzy memories returning of battling him as a child, I could never figure out where that feeling of strong familiarity came from. Or why, inexplicably, the sight of him made me immediately feel something akin to, intense sorrow. It even felt like a loss. I had gotten that feeling when I had stood behind the glass of the containment chamber and we were face to face as he asked me, with zero recognition, who I was. And I got that feeling every time I saw a new picture of him, every time I noticed the white scar that slashed through his right eyebrow, wondering how he got it. But why? Why would the sight of some ex-supervillain make me feel sad? What, besides being supervillains that we were constantly battling and arresting in the past, did these guys have to do with us? What significance could they have had in our lives beyond that? If that was really all he was to me, logically, he meant nothing to me. I shook my head, trying to snap myself out of these circling thoughts. Perhaps they were just false memories, trying to confuse me. Professor said that could happen once in a while as we remembered things. Maybe my brain was just playing tricks on me again. Before I knew it, I had scrolled down to the bottom of the search results page. For a moment or two, I thought of closing out the page. But as I did, my eyes caught on something peculiar. 
Under a related searches column, it was full of phrases such as, Blossom Powerpuff Girls, Brick Rowdy Rough Boys, Comma Blossom Utonium and Brick Jojo. Kissing, comma, Blossom PPG, Brick RRB Dating, comma, Bubbles Utonium Boomer Jojo, Going Out, comma, Buttercup Butch, Dating, comma, Powerpuff Girls Rowdy Rough Boys Team Up, comma, Powerpuff Rowdy Rough, Lost Battle with Monsters, comma, Powerpuff Girls Disappearance, comma, PPG RRB Relationships. My eyes locked on all those strange words as my stomach did a somersault. The disappearance one I understood. That one was probably from when we were sick. But the rest of them, what on earth? I wondered if search engines could make up fake searches. Those couldn't have been real. Could they have? Aside from my bewilderment, though, I couldn't help but notice that tugging in my mind again. It had returned, and more insistently this time. Some sort of recognition of these words. Feeling antsy, and unable to deny my piqued curiosity, reluctantly, I moved the mouse pointer over Blossom Powerpuff Girls Brick Rowdy Rough Boys. That seemed to be the safest and least creepy one out of them all. I took a deep breath, paused for one more moment, then I clicked with a grimace. The new search results loaded, and as soon as my eyes took in what was on the page, shock struck me in the gut. My eyes widened. The image results were listed before the web results, so they were the first that I noticed. An image of myself looked back at me, an image of myself with him. I hastily clicked on it, making its size grow to full screen so that I could see every detail and make sure my eyes weren't playing tricks on me. There I was, with the charismatic and harrowing leader of the Rowdy Rough Boys. The both of us were looking for traffic as we crossed the street, respective red hair tousled by the breeze, both of us wearing sunglasses and holding hands. But wait. The picture, it looked somewhat familiar. Where had I seen that background before? I froze. Realization hitting me, I jumped up from my desk and hurried toward my bedside table where I had left the magazines I'd been looking at earlier. I skimmed through all of them until I found it, aha. One of the pictures had a big hole cut in it. I rushed back to my desk. Open magazine in hand, I held it up to my face, and then to the picture on the computer screen. The brick in each picture lined up perfectly, the way his head was angled, the shirt he wore, the same expression. Except in the internet version of the picture, there wasn't a gaping hole where I was standing. Like the hole the professor had made to deliberately remove me from the entire picture. Hands shaking with shock and disbelief, I threw the magazine away from me and onto the floor. I dropped back into my desk chair and stared at the computer screen, frantically clicking through more pictures and the image results. Pictures of us flying high over the photographer's head, hands linked, red and pink streaks tailing us. Pictures of us sitting together on the other side of a cafe window, heads ducked down into books or midsip from a mug of coffee. A shot of us from several feet behind on a sidewalk, his arm around my shoulders as he guided me through what looked like a mob of reporters. Some shots of us at night, coming out of different restaurants, where I was wearing heels and pretty evening dresses. A series of shots of us at a park, some with us sitting on a picnic blanket and enjoying lunch from a basket, and a few of Brick spotting the photographer, glaring at the camera. And then, more shots from seemingly the same day, of us hiding in a tree. We stood on a thick branch in a large tree at the park, partially shrouded by the leaves. Brick seemed to have a finger pressed to his own lips, smiling down at me playfully as he held me against him with his other hand, 
and I was staring up at him, laughing so hard that my whole face was flushed. I clicked through more, and there were some more repeats until another unfamiliar one popped up, this one was taken in some parking lot somewhere, at night, and the two of us were locked in an embrace. And we were kissing. Eyes widened, I touched my lips with the tips of my fingers, staring ahead at the picture. My stomach churned and twisted. I could barely process what I was seeing with my own two eyes. The familiarity, the recognition, the feeling was still there, but why couldn't I remember any of this? All of this should have been bringing back some memories for me, or at least some semblance of a memory. But all I felt was confusion. It felt like I was looking at two strangers in these pictures. Clicking onto the next series of pictures, I beheld the two of us at an outdoor ice skating rink that had a 20-foot-tall, festively decorated Christmas tree smack in the middle of it. Dressed in winter clothes, a pink coat and a red coat with scarves and hats and gloves, we gripped each other's forearms as we balanced on skates, I looked uneasy, looking as if I were losing my balance, and Brick looked as if he were steadying me, his face amused and cheerful with encouragement. I stared at the smile on his face. His smile was the kind that was transformative. I could barely recognize him as that once evil little boy when he looked in such a way, when he looked so happy that he was illuminated from the inside. Looking at the picture's caption, I immediately saw the date these pictures were uploaded, December 31st of last year. This was recent. With empty uncertainty, I clicked through more of the image results, now barely pausing long enough to take them in. There were hundreds upon hundreds of them. Thousands. Finally somewhat snapping back to my senses, on impulse, I clicked the back arrow, going all the way back to the page where I had seen all the strange related searches, and when I made it back there, I clicked next on PPGRRB relationships, without any hesitation this time. There must have been millions of results now. Eyes even wider, I took in everything. There weren't just a couple shots of me and Brick this time. I saw multiple pictures of bubbles with the blonde brother, Boomer, and shots of Buttercup with the one called Butch. Countless pictures. But not just pictures. Articles, too. Are they, aren't they types of articles? Pure news articles about some battle that we'd lost sometime last year. Gossip articles containing more paparazzi pictures, including a picture of a casually dressed Bubbles walking alongside Boomer with a tall cup of coffee in her hand and large, glamorous sunglasses on her face. There was another article with another picture taken at night of Bubbles, dressed in glitzy evening wear and bashfully turning her face from the camera, Boomer holding her hand and leading her past the photographers protectively with a hardened look on his face. More articles that seemed more like think pieces. I kept scrolling through the web results. Fan blogs. Fan blogs everywhere, containing blog posts about how cute the Powerpuff Girls and rowdy rough boys' relationships were, and how we were the picture of perfection and that we're all meant to be together. Entire image blogs dedicated to pictures of us. All of it went on and on, spiraling into infinity. This wasn't some elaborate hoax. It wasn't some joke. This was real. My sisters and I had dated the Rowdy Rough Brothers. Adrenaline sailed through me as I abruptly reached and turned on my desktop printer, making sure I had plenty of printer paper inside of it. I clicked back to the results page that contained just the images, and I quickly got to work, compiling and printing any and everything. 
Candid pictures, press conference pictures, anything I needed as evidence, I printed them. Then I printed news articles, as many as I could copy and paste from the most credible sources. I printed all of these things for two hours at the least, until I ran out of paper completely. And then I gathered all of my evidence, marching straight out of my room. I heard my sisters in the living room, and I flew down the hallway and down the stairs to the main level of the house. I stormed straight into the living room, not even bothering to glance at the television screen to see what they were watching before I reached for the power button and turned it off. Hey! Buttercup exclaimed, predictably. We were watching that. Too bad. I said, marching right over to the other side of the empty coffee table and slamming down my heavy, thick stack of evidence. The loud wham it made echoed off of the ceiling. My sisters jumped, staring down at the pile of papers I had thrown down. Alarmed, Bubbles asked, what is that? What, indeed, I said, spreading the pile apart over the surface of the table so that the pages were displayed better. I snatched up a picture of Bubbles, and... Boomer, Boomer was hugging her from behind as Bubbles was laughing, and held it up for her to see. Behold, Professor's Secret. Immediately, Bubbles grabbed the picture from my hands, disbelief on her face. What? She trailed off, frowning as her eyes grew wider. What is this? Buttercup had leaned over to stare at the picture too, slack-jawed, and then she bent over the piles of pages, leafing through until a picture of her and Butch was exposed, his arm was slung over her shoulders, bringing her in close as he kissed the top of her head. Her hands froze momentarily. Then she grasped the picture in both hands, glaring at it in stunned silence. I folded my arms, nodding. Remember how we were wondering all this time why those magazines had a bunch of pages cut out of them? I pointed down to all of my evidence. This. This is why. I picked up another picture Buttercup was in, it was a grainy, faraway shot of the two facing each other, Butch lifting Buttercup up above him, his arms wrapped tightly around her hips, and Buttercup looking down at him, laughing and trying to wiggle out of his grasp. The very picture of Bliss, it was the glaring opposite of that picture of him and that cop. I handed it to Buttercup. Look for yourselves. Buttercup snatched the picture from my hand. Is this for real? Once again, she glared down at the picture as if she couldn't believe what she was seeing with her own eyes. Tell me this is a joke. It's not a joke, I said with a sigh. Why, Bubbles paused. Her voice shook, just as her hands were shaking. Why wouldn't the professor tell us about any of this? I wanted you to find out on your own, professor's voice suddenly came from the kitchen doorway. All three of us whirled to look at him. His arms were folded, and he had the decency to look guilty. I was honestly hoping that you would remember on your own first, instead of finding all of those trashy articles written about all of you. My feelings of betrayal were quelled at his admission and were immediately buried by more shock. So is it true, then? I asked him. About them, and us? Professor began to walk into the living room, and then he gestured to the couch. Have a seat next to your sisters. I'll explain everything. Quickly, I made my way over to the couch, sitting between my sisters. Then I looked up at him, nodding as a signal that he'd better start explaining. To his credit, he started right away. Girls, the Rowdy Rough Brothers are not just your ex-enemies, 
they're your ex-teammates. And, yes, you were all romantically involved, for about, three years. My sisters and I quietly processed this. Bubbles had leaned forward, picking up more pictures of her and Boomer and emptily staring at them. Buttercup had her head in her hands. It seemed as though neither of them was going to speak, so I had to ask. So, are we all broken up now? Well, that's where it gets complicated. Professor, blew air out. When I reintroduced you all to each other weeks ago, well, I suppose I had hoped that upon sight, your memories would be jogged, and all would be well. But obviously, that wasn't what happened. And it seems that it still hasn't happened. Even with the sight of these pictures and articles, he swept his hand over the piles of papers, you still don't seem to remember this level of involvement with them. I shook my head. Bubbles said, I don't remember any of this. Her eyes were still full of slight fear and confusion. Neither do I, Buttercup added. She looked frustrated and creeped out. It's so peculiar, Professor said to us, looking flummoxed. I don't understand why the home videos helped jog your memory, but these have done nothing for you all to remember the boys. It doesn't make sense to me. Not at all. None of this made any sense to me. How had I forgotten this? There was so much that didn't make sense to me. So many pieces that were missing. How had someone that had been my sworn enemy as a child become my boyfriend? How had his brothers dated my sisters? How did something like that even come to be? Had we been brainwashed? Did we forget all of the horrible things they had done before? The horrible people that they were? How could we have possibly forgotten what they were? In the days that followed, my sisters and I kept returning to those pictures that I had printed out. But despite our persistence, those pictures remained empty and meaningless to us. No memories of them restored. None at all. Days after the discovery I'd made, my sisters and I had done our best to go about our days like we had been doing before, trying to go back to our peaceful summer routines. And it didn't take long before that peace was rudely interrupted with a detonation of reality that we didn't have the privilege of overlooking. More Bucks has been apprehended. More Bucks? Apprehended? My head snapped up, the passing news story on the television, catching my attention at once snatching my eyes away from the novel that I'd been comfortably reading on the couch. The news anchor on the television went on, this morning, the young former heiress was arrested on the charges of conspiring with the supervillain him and the missing ex-supervillain Mojo Jojo on multiple counts of attempting to destroy the city with mutant monsters. She is also charged with illegal possession of the now-defunct Chemical X and possibly using corrupt means to attain it. The Townsville Police Department is investigating further on this count. While she has had questionable behavior in the past, as well as a history of trying to destroy the city before, her father's status in the city always protected her from ever being properly charged. But the recent, sudden death of her billionaire father is what led to her arrest, and it seems things will be very different for the polarizing ex-heiress from this point forward. With her current charges, after spending her time in court, she could spend up to 30 years in prison for her federal crimes. I had been sitting there listening to the unexpected news story in a dazed shock, and then it occurred to me that my sisters and professor should be hearing this news. I snatched up the remote, rewinding the live TV feed and then pausing it to quickly leave and gather everybody into the living room.
Once I had everybody gathered in the room, I played the breaking news segment once again, looking over at the amazement and shock on all of their faces as it played. She's actually, in jail? Bubbles asked, though it seemed to be rhetorical. And we're not the ones who put her there, Buttercup commented, folding her arms. She'd been squinting at the TV screen in disbelief. Well, I'll be damned. The monsters, I started, shaking my head. Those monsters we fought last fall. She'd been the one that made them? With Mojo and him? Professor nodded. Yes. It, certainly appears that way. Who'd have thought she would be behind it? Buttercup turned away from the TV as the news segment finished. From the high school queen bee to being a felon again. I knew she was horrible, but... She trailed off, at a loss for words. I guess I never thought she would go back to a life of crime, I said, building off of where Buttercup had left off. I just thought she was done with it. That she had more interest in being internet famous and getting promotional modeling deals on her social media. I didn't think she would be capable of this type of thing again. Grudgingly, hating that I even had to admit that I'd been wrong about something, I admitted, I underestimated her. I think we all underestimated what she was capable of, Blossom, Professor said to me. After pressing his lips together in thought, he added, as if he had been thinking it all along, but I think that's what she wanted. The element of surprise, I thought. It was the best move for the large-scale comeback she and Mojo would have wanted, I had to admit. And she had almost gotten away with it, which had made the plan all the more powerful. But things don't always go as planned. And the time that had ruined our lives had ruined everything for them, too. Mojo reduced to a mere chimp. Princess's money shield taken away for good. But there was one thing that made me wonder. What about him? I asked the room suddenly, breaking the silence. I was frowning. What would he have gained from working with them at all? Why would he stoop to their level when he could do whatever he wanted? My sisters took my words into consideration, and they looked as dumbfounded as I felt. As for Professor, he had broken eye contact with us, moving away like he was about to go back down into the lab. He lingered in the kitchen doorway, gripping one side of the archway with one hand. Something tells me, he said, with a peculiar tone to his voice, that in the end, he might have gained from it more than we might think. Then, he shrugged in a who-knows sort of manner and turned, making his way into the kitchen toward the basement door. If you'll excuse me, girls, I have a thesis, calling my name. All of us watched him go, and once again, I had the conviction that the professor knew more than he was letting on. But just as the last time I asked, I knew he would decline to tell me, so I wouldn't ask again. Not until he was ready to tell us. I still trusted him regardless. Hey, Buttercup interrupted the silence, turning to us and thrusting a thumb toward the direction Professor had left in. Is it me, or did he sound like a fortune cookie just now? Jojo, I said to the chimp as I picked up a new flashcard, which had a picture of an inflatable ball on it. What is this one? Jojo sat, looking at the card and lifting his hand into the air. Then, slowly, he signed the letters. B-A-L-L. Yes, that's right. Very good, Jojo. I exclaimed, holding my other hand out, palm out. High five. Jojo met my palm with his, giving me five as his lips pulled back from his teeth, grinning in his chimp way. 
sometimes I liked to come down to Jojo's room in the lab. It was fun to watch him play, or wander around, or help him with his sign language vocabulary. It was times like this when I barely remembered what he used to be, and what we used to be to each other. But today, I intended on not forgetting. Today, I wanted to try something new. An experiment. I flipped through more of the flashcards, looking for the particular one I had seen the last time I'd practiced this with him. Finding it, I said to Jojo, okay, ready for another one? Jojo blinked. I held up the new flash card on it. It had a cartoon drawing of a stereotypical family on it. Two parents and two kids. What's this one, Jojo? Spell it for me. Jojo held up his hand. F-A-M-I-L-Y. Very good, Jojo. That's a family. Very good, I said. I pondered for a moment if he truly knew what the picture meant, or if he had just memorized its meaning. Behind my back, tucked into the waistband of my sundress, I took out a picture from the internet that I had printed out the night before. I brought it in front of me, adding it to the stack of flashcards in my hand. One more for today, I said. Are you ready? Moment of truth. I turned the picture on the flimsy printer paper to face him. Who is this, Jojo? The picture, containing the image of all three of the rowdy rough boys standing together, shook between my hands. I had purposely chosen a picture of them when they were much younger, when they had still worked enthusiastically alongside Mojo. Jojo stared at it for a long time. I could practically see the gears turning in his head. He really seemed to be taking it in, truly absorbing it, and it made my stomach flip-flop. Then, very slowly, he raised his hand. But instead of signing with it, he pointed to the picture. Then he poked it with his finger as if it were going to poke him back. Do you remember them, Jojo? I whispered now, so I wouldn't startle him out of his intense concentration. You created them. Don't you remember? Jojo lowered his hand from the picture, staring at the picture for a few more moments. He blinked. Then, without a care, Jojo stood and turned around. He wandered away from me, making his way over to his monkey bars, climbing up with his hands and feet and beginning to swing in between them. My stomach dropped sourly, though I wasn't terribly surprised. I and my flashcards had been forgotten. Yeah, I said, dissatisfied. Nodding slowly, I watched him play as I gathered up the flashcards from the floor, getting ready to exit. Me neither. Even with all the progress my sisters and I had made over the last couple of months, some days, progress still felt as if it moved at a snail's pace. The more that our memories had returned to us, which had improved much faster than Professor had originally predicted, the more the existential agony had set in. Some days, it felt as if I was walking around as an imposter, pretending to be okay. Pretending as each heartbeat ate. Pretending as if my own mind weren't screaming at me, what's the point? What are you even doing? Pretending as if my life hadn't once been so full and that I hadn't lost it all. Like. Death hadn't still become this constant, overhanging, horrifying reality for all of us ever since we'd managed the inconceivable and defeated it. I still had flashes of memory that triggered bouts of panic and nightmares about extreme dehydration that made me ache down to my muscles, roiling nausea that made it impossible to move, or about headaches that split my brain into two. I knew this event would never be something I would get over. 
one doesn't simply get over death. It leaves its mark on someone in one way or another. The biggest challenge was dealing with this new weight on my shoulders, the reminder of what I had gone through would always be there. And the reminder would either build me up and keep me going or break me down into nothing. I refused to let it break me down. Even letting it win for one second would be one second too long, it would wrap around me and pull me down and swallow me up like quicksand and suffocate me. So, I would learn to run with this new weight on me. Maybe some days I would walk, or maybe sometimes that walk would be more like a crawl, or like dragging myself forward by my fingertips. But no matter what, I would keep moving. No matter what. One thing I couldn't help, though, was this persistent feeling of loss. This aching emptiness in my life. Not quite like a hole. More like a Grand Canyon. A throbbing, screaming Grand Canyon of emptiness in my life. Sometimes I felt this loss and grief and terror stronger than anything else. And these particular days, it felt almost impossible to even move my limbs, let alone even act normally as I went about my daily routines. It was even worse at night, as if the darkness closed in on me and brought forth every horrifying thought it could manage. Often it kept me tossing and turning in a half-awake half-asleep fever nightmare. These feelings were imperceptible on the outside. I wrestled with it ceaselessly, and yet my sisters and father had no idea. How could something that felt so overpowering be so invisible? But I tried my best to live with it, to breathe through the relentless ache. I knew I was missing something. And I longed, ached, for those carefree, happy parts of my past to return to me. The fulfillment, the belonging I must have felt, why didn't I feel that way now? Aside from our trauma, what has changed? Though, it wasn't as if I completely lacked belonging. Of course, I belonged to my sisters. That was one of the only things I was sure of these days. My sisters and I were of the same kind, three of a kind. And if anything, I knew I would always belong to them, and they would always belong to me, without any doubt. Though truly, we weren't three of a kind, there were technically three more. Those ex-criminal brothers. The rowdy roughs. But as many memories that had returned to me since meeting them, none of my newly recalled memories were of them. I still had those very fuzzy childhood memories of them as rivals, as did my sisters. But the actual events that we had witnessed concrete evidence of in those pictures I had found on the internet, it was as if they had never happened. It was like a giant blind spot in my brain. Perhaps if I had never found those pictures and articles, and had never seen the brothers in person with my very eyes, I would think that they didn't even exist anymore. If they were so important, wouldn't we have remembered them that way by now? What was keeping those memories from coming back? Part of me wished that I had kept some sort of record. A journal, or a blog, or something. Something that would help jog any memories. Even as I wondered this, though, another part of me wondered if it was better that I couldn't remember them that way. Pictures were just pictures. Pictures couldn't capture everything within a relationship. Who's to say that we might not have actually been happy with them? Furthermore, what if it was fake? After all, it's not like we could have ever loved them for real. Maybe it was just that we had become a super team, and to look more united, we staged fake relationships with them so that the public would trust them, a public relations type of arrangement. Actors did those all the time with co-stars so that their movies would be more popular. 
It had to be something like that. It had to be. Why else would they have been so forgettable to us? Maybe they were just co-workers to us after all. The more I thought of this theory, the more it made sense to me. So much that over several days, this is what I began to suspect was the truth. I even told my sisters about my theory, and they agreed, telling me that it made sense to them, too. That I had to be right. That maybe not even the professor knew of the secret arrangement we'd made with those brothers. So, after I told them this, our discussions about those brothers went from frequent to none at all. The rowdy rough brothers, as a topic of memory conversations, held no more weight in our home any more than occasional talk of small local crime, or what the temperature outside would be the following Tuesday. Despite everything, there was more for us to think about now, the future was now our oyster. We had so much ahead of us, so much to accomplish. Next week, all three of us will go with Professor, to Warner University. We would re-enroll for the following fall semester, and prepare to make our grand return to campus. I was so excited about it that every time I thought of it I had to keep myself from somersaulting into the air with joy. In a few months, I would be back on my way to earning my biochemical engineering degree. We would live at home during our first fall semester back, just to be safe, but that didn't matter. I would still be back at my beloved college soon. I would be back at my second home in just a few months' time. I could hardly wait. One night the following week, I woke up in the middle of the night in a cold sweat. I'd remembered. Stephen. That was the name of a boy that I dated in high school. I couldn't remember for how long I'd dated him. I'd had a dream about him, no, maybe it was a memory. A memory of us sitting at the dining room table downstairs, quietly doing homework together. Once in a while I'd look up, see him staring at me. It made me uncomfortable, but I would smile at him anyway. Then, the dream cut ahead through some unknown time frame. I was standing in our living room, dressed in a pretty dress. I had seen this dress somewhere before, perhaps in another memory. I was facing Stephen, and I was utterly devastated, I was crying. And it felt like something had been ripped out of me. Stephen was glaring past me at something or someone, and then he looked straight at me. His gray eyes were so sad, he looked inconsolable. He looked at me like his entire world had been crushed. As I had jolted awake in bed after the dream ended, I'd had the urge to call him. I looked at the clock. It was just past 1 a.m. I suddenly had the very distinct feeling that I had called him this late before, but likely not for a very long time. I picked up my cell phone, which the professor had just given back to me within the past week or so. He'd had to change our numbers, because the press had gotten a hold of our old numbers. And with the return of our phones, we were also allowed back on our social media accounts, officially. He had figured from my whole expose I'd done behind his back that keeping us off the internet any longer was doing us more harm than help, and at this point, we were going to get curious anyway. Days earlier, I had looked at my long-abandoned public social media accounts, and it seemed like I had always kept the posts professional. There were no posts or hints of my private life at all. That was so like me, so I wasn't terribly surprised by that. But it was too bad, if there had been pictures I hadn't seen on there before, or specific status updates or anything like that, it could have helped me remember more long-term memories. In my phone, I opened my contacts and scrolled through them, all the way down. There was no Stephen on my phone. 
No Stephen at all. But Brick's number was there. It took me a while to realize it was him because he wasn't under his actual name, there was a picture of him set as the contact picture, one that I seemingly took of him as he was reading something, his head dipped downward and his forehead furrowed in concentration. The contact name was, simply, my love. That contact name was something that I couldn't understand. Because if the whole dating thing between us had been a fake public relation set up like I had thought, why would his name in my phone contacts be something so affectionate? In a place that only I would see? Who had I done it for? It didn't make any sense to me. And it was the one thing that had exposed a giant, gaping flaw in my theory. And I didn't like this feeling at all, doubting myself. I sat awake in my bed, staring at his contact entry in my phone, for what felt like half an hour. Then, as my eyelids began to droop with sleep again, I pressed the delete button. Are you sure you want to delete my love from your contacts? My phone prompted me. I frowned, hesitating. Then slowly, I moved my thumb with finality, to select, yes. I did the same with his brother's numbers. And then it was done. Erased. Forever. My purpose, as I now knew for a fact, was to help this world. I was meant to protect with my super abilities, to share my intellect, to be someone for the girls. And women of Townsville and beyond to admire and look up to. And to lead my sisters. My role was so complex, so important. And why would I ever risk all of that to possibly fake date, or at least collaborate with, an ex-supervillain? To possibly, I assumed, agree to improve his image, to the public, by tarnishing my own? It was irresponsible, and so unlike me. And I could not even begin to fathom why I had ever done such a thing. All I wanted to do now was to erase what I had done. Go on as if it never happened. Unlike other parts of my past that had come back to me, I wanted to forget this. And now, with determination, I would. I would. I had to. One day, several days after I had deleted those three numbers from my phone, we got an unexpected call at the house. After he answered the phone in the living room and exchanged a few sentences with whoever was on the other end of the line, Professor came through the kitchen entrance and over to me. He was still holding the phone, and his hand was pressed over the phone's receiver. It's the Townsville District Attorney's Office. The prosecution lawyer wants to know if you and your sisters would be willing to testify against Princess Moorbucks in court. My eyebrows shot up. I had decided to peruse school supplies online for our semester back, and much earlier than I really had to, just to get the best ones. Before they sold out. But this unexpected development now had my full attention. Against? I echoed. Yes. Professor's tone was serious. He would like to speak to you. Now my eyes widened. To me? I pointed to myself. Right now? He nodded, then I heard a tiny voice come from the phone's tiny speaker. He pressed it to his ear again and spoke into the phone. No, that won't be necessary. Just one moment, please. He covered the receiver with his hand once again. He said they could call someone else if you're not willing to do it. I hesitated, my throat tight. Then, lips pressed together, I shook my head. I held my hand out. Let me talk to him. Professor said into the phone, Blossom wants to speak to you. Here she is.
Then he handed me the home phone. I took a deep breath, then released it. I pressed the phone to my ear, sitting back against the hard wooden back of the chair I sat in. Hello? The voice on the other end was deep and professional sounding. Ms. Blossom Utonium, good afternoon. I'm so glad I could get a hold of you. My name is Ben Jones, I'm the chosen prosecution for the Princess Morbucks court case. Thank you for sparing a moment to speak with me. It's no problem at all, I said, shaking my head even though he couldn't see it. What can I help you with? Here's the thing, Mr. Jones started, I'm up a creek, here. There are so few people willing to testify against the princess in court. Good old-fashioned intimidation, you know? I mean, she's a more bucks. Very few people have been willing to go against them. I see, I said. I got it, I really did. I had seen plenty of that intimidation with my own eyes. He went on. And to be frank with you, if you and your sisters testified against her, it would basically be a guaranteed win. You're superheroes, and you have a long past with her. And you're partly the reason she's finally been caught. If anyone could help us finally send her behind bars, it would be you guys. So, if you could just take some time to consider doing this, it would mean the world. Okay. He paused. Then politely, he asked, excuse me? I clarified, okay. We'll do it. I looked up to see the professor nodding down at me in approval. Tentatively, I smiled. We'll testify against her. Excellent, Mr. Jones said on the other end. He sounded so relieved. Wow. This is great. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ms. Utonium. You won't regret this, I promise you. I'm sure I won't, I replied. This was our last chance to take Princess down, and possibly for good. Something told me Bubbles and Buttercup wouldn't be opposed to this whatsoever. The court date is July 20th, th, said Mr. Jones, sounding as if he were frantically typing something. At 11 a.m. If you'll give me your email address, I'll email you all of the finer details. After briefly giving him my email, we hung up. Then, wordlessly, I offered the phone back to the professor. Professor reached to grab it from my hand. This will be your first official public appearance since. His voice trailed off. Yeah, I said, swallowing hard. I know. Professor went to put the phone back where it belonged, then he came back over to me, sitting next to me at the kitchen table. How does it feel? I closed my eyes tightly. My fists clenched. Terrifying, I said. T minus one week. One week until facing the public, the world, for the first time in what felt like decades. One week until facing one of our old opponents for what might be, for what would hopefully be, the last time for a very long time. This felt like diving headfirst into a vortex. I clenched my fists tighter, and I opened my eyes. I turned to look at the calendar on the far wall of the kitchen. My eyes narrowed on July 20th, th. One week to prepare myself and my sisters for this day, which would really be a battle of a different kind in and of itself. And when it came? We would be ready. The 20th of July cake. Just as one might expect of the dead of summer, this day, in particular, was scorching. 
We were in the middle of a legendary heat wave, but the weatherman on Channel 10 had said it was one of the hottest days Townsville had seen in 30 years. And just as the weather itself was remarkable, many other remarkable things were to happen on this day. On our drive over to the courthouse, we passed cars parked on the sides of the road that had overheated engines. There were kids splashing through kiddie pools in front yards, and running through sprinklers, and throwing water. Balloons. The tinkering tune of ice cream trucks filled the air of residential neighborhoods. I took in these sights as we passed them by. Surrounding my senses in these comforting, familiar summertime sights were helping to calm my nerves. This court appearance would be our first official public appearance since we had been revived and had mostly healed as we relearned our world. And the thought of facing hordes of the press after so long was incredibly daunting. Remember girls, Professor had said to us, before we'd left the house, sunglasses on, faces down. Do not engage. You are not required to answer any of their questions. You don't owe them anything, not even after being out of the spotlight for so long. The police will be there to keep the press under control. We had all spent most of the drive to downtown Townsville in a deep silence, the car's air conditioner roaring and the car's engine being the only sounds. The air conditioner needed to be fixed, though, the air wasn't nearly as cool as it needed to be, and lukewarm air blowing at our faces wasn't enough to keep our legs from sticking to the leather seats. Sometime later, a little too soon for my liking, we had arrived. The Townsville courthouse was beautiful. It was one of the oldest buildings in town, and it had managed to stay out of the way of most attacks the city had weathered, so it was also the most well-preserved. The dome of the building arched up high above the rest of the building, and the stained glass it was partially made of reminded me of a cathedral. On the numerous front steps of the courthouse, however, were hordes and hordes of reporters. There must have been at least two hundred of them. Buttercup groaned at the sight of them all, and Bubbles made a nervous whimpering sound. I only sighed. After Professor parked his car in a non-conspicuous area in the courthouse's parking lot, we sat waiting for our police escorts to arrive at our car, they had been parked at the edge of the parking lot, keeping a lookout for Professor's car, and once they spotted us, they followed us. Within minutes, eight uniformed police officers had come to stand by our car. Professor looked over at me in the passenger seat and then turned to look at my sisters in the back seat. I glanced back at them, too. Bubbles was in her powder blue floral mid-length, belted sundress with cap sleeves, along with a pair of heels, and Buttercup was in an oversized Iron Maiden t-shirt knotted in the front with black cut-off shorts and her neon green lace-up vans. I had asked her to try to dress a little more appropriately for a court appearance, maybe something like my denim skater skirt and blush-colored, sleeveless mock neck blouse and sandals, but she'd ignored me. She hadn't even removed her small hoop nose ring when I'd asked, or opted for a more neutral lipstick instead of her deep purple lipstick when I'd suggested it. I sighed inwardly. At least her hair looked nice. Her hair had now grown out somewhat and resembled a neat Mia Farrow-style pixie cut. Just as her buzz cut had, it looked ridiculously charming on her. I was rather jealous. Well, Professor said, unbuckling his own seatbelt. It's now or never. He had changed out of his lab clothes into a more regular-looking dress shirt, tie, and dress pants. He looked nice. I nodded, sighing again, and unbuckled my seatbelt too. Now or never. With all of us out of the car, 
the officers gave us a polite greeting, and then all twelve of us headed to the front of the courthouse, knowing that soon the piranhas would awaken. Once one or two of the reporters had spotted us, the rest quickly followed, and soon a whole ocean of people was shouting at us and running at us, cameras flashing and microphones thrust out towards us. The officers tried their hardest to keep them all at bay, but that meant our progress up the grand steps was slow. Professor stood in front of us within the huddle the police provided, and my sisters and I held hands, keeping our heads ducked downward and our mouths shut. The humid, hot air pressed in on us from all sides, which was made worse by all the surrounding body heat, not to mention the odors of sweat and sunscreen mixing together with melting perfumes and colognes into something horrible. The shouts, the camera shutters, the shoving bodies, it was all so overpowering. I hadn't remembered all of this. I didn't ask for this. I hated this. I hated this so much. Why did we decide to come here? It was a horrible idea. We should have just stayed home and continued living our relaxing summer. I would rather have been reading out in the backyard with my feet dipped into a kiddie pool. Nonetheless, our little huddle pressed on through the press hornet's nest, moving slowly but surely toward the double front doors of the courtroom. My hand still gripping my sister's, we continued to refuse to look up. So, I suppose, that's why the sudden high-pitched voice calling my name brought me out of my tense days like a jolt. Blossom. I heard the small voice through the adult reporters shouting from somewhere behind me, and even though I knew I shouldn't, I turned to look. And immediately, I saw a small, tan and skinny arm with a small hand holding a lone dandelion flower, and a small, scared face peeking through the tall bodies of the reporters, who didn't even seem to care that they were squishing a child. Before I could stop myself, I let go of my sisters, and I reached a hand out toward him. Stop. I yelled at the reporters. You're crushing him. Immediately, I rushed over to the little hand holding the dandelion, and I clutched onto the hand with mine. Let him through. I instructed. Blossom? I heard the unspoken question in Buttercup's low voice, behind me. I glanced back at her, only nodding at her and Bubbles in reassurance as they stared at me in question. I turned back, and as the two officers on either side of me pushed the careless reporters aside, I took the little boy's shoulders and pulled him out of the dense crowd, into our safe huddle. I bent down to look him in the face. Are you okay? I asked him. You're not hurt, are you? The boy laughed. He had the sweetest face and sparkling almond-shaped eyes. His two front teeth were missing. Yeah, I'm alright. Thanks to you. He held up the dandelion to me. I picked this for you. The crowd had quieted, and I could feel every camera on us. But, oddly, I didn't mind. I accepted the dandelion, grinning. For me? Why, thank you. I placed the stem of the flower behind my ear so that the flower poked out from the curled tendrils of my hair. There. Now my hair looks pretty. You always look pretty, he told me, and then his small face grew very worried. Blossom, are you still sick? Professor had told us to avoid the press questions. But there was no way I could ignore a question when it came from a little boy this sweet. Immediately, I answered, no, I'm not. I'm all better now. A big smile burst onto his face now, and dimples appeared on either side of his face. 
I melted a little. He shouted, good. You gotta feel good to kick bad guys' butts. The whole crowd burst into laughter, including me. Suddenly, one of the police officers said to me, it looks like you have more admirers. Should we bring them over? I looked over to where he was gesturing, and there was a group of more hopeful, excited-looking kids around the same age range who were each holding pieces of paper. I nodded, smiling. Yeah, let them through. The officers guided them through the crowd to us, and the excited kids burst through. One girl came running directly to me, throwing her arms around me so tightly it felt like she wanted to squeeze all the air out of my lungs. Whoa. I said, bending down slightly to wrap my arms around her tiny shoulders. Hello there. You're good at hugs. The little girl looked up at me so brightly that I couldn't help but smile down at her. She had red hair, too, and rosy cheeks. I love you, Blossom, she said to me. I love you so, so much. Just like that, tears pricked in my eyes. Seemed to happen at the drop of a hat these days. I was glad once again that I was wearing these big sunglasses. I was so touched that for a moment I couldn't speak. Then I gently squeezed her back. That means so much to me. Thank you. The kids began giving me and my sister's handmade get well soon cards, and the press was practically in a frenzy trying to capture every moment. They gave us hugs and high fives, and even Buttercup was in on it, even though in the past she had sworn up and down that she hated kids. But when a little girl approached Buttercup and pointed to her own almost hairless head, telling her she'd shaved her head so that she'd look as cool as her hero Buttercup, I could have sworn that Buttercup looked a little glassy-eyed through her reflective aviator sunglasses, at least, from what I could tell with my momentary x-ray squint. And in this moment, I felt it so strongly, this. This was why we were who we were, and why we did what we did. Not for these reporters. Not to feel like an animal in a zoo. We did it for them. These kids, the citizens who needed us now, and would need us for as long as we remained around. And it was as simple as that. Before we knew it, 15 minutes had passed, and we couldn't be late for the trial. So we said goodbye to the kids, and now that the press was satisfied with the footage that would surely be all over the 5 o'clock news that evening, there was much less resistance as we headed inside. Right before we walked through the entrance, though, a lone journalist, maybe a blogger, with a recording smartphone outstretched, called my name. Pardon me, Blossom? Deciding that he was harmless and that it couldn't hurt, I turned to him and paused just as the heavy, tall doors in front of us opened. Yes? I asked, wary. He smiled at me, making his face look kind. Welcome back. I smiled back at him, feeling a hand pulling on my arm, urging me forward, bubbles. Thank you, I said to him as I walked through the doorway. Then I turned and disappeared inside the cool, air-conditioned courthouse as the door swung, closed behind my officer escorts. And what a welcome back it had been. Thank you, defense and prosecution, for both of your opening statements. Townsville Supreme Court Judge, Maisie Jackson, was someone I had admired for a long time. One of Townsville's most praised judges, I was now sitting in her courtroom and listening to her speak. It was like listening to a queen address her court. As I know it, the defense was unable to attain witnesses and has refused to testify. So, with that, I turn the floor to the prosecution. 
Currently, I wasn't looking at her. At Princess. I had been determined not to look at her when she had first come in, but then I had slipped, for mere seconds. Black, beady eyes, just as I remembered. Full of contempt, entitlement, and hatred. Being looked at that way reminded me of our hellish high school years with her, and the hellish middle school years, and the elementary school ones before that. She was clad in a neon orange jumpsuit that clashed unflatteringly with her dark red hair, which was straightened permanently these days, and made her spray tan skin look even more unnatural. Interestingly, though, prison orange suited her. Karma was sweet. But I could feel her piercing gaze all the way from the defendant's bench. Her gaze hadn't left us once since she'd first entered the courtroom with police officer guards on either side of her. The courtroom was packed with people, too. But she only glared at us. I could practically imagine all the fantasy strangulation scenarios running through her head. Prosecution, you may call your first witness. Thank you, Your Honor. Prosecution calls witness Bubbles' utonium to the stand. Bubbles looked over at me, her eyebrows furrowed in worry. I reached over, rubbing her shoulder and giving her a reassuring grin. She nodded, took in a deep breath, and then stood from our bench. Steadily and gracefully, hands clenched in front of her, she made her way over to the stand. Her heels clicked against the wood floors, and the sound echoed off the high ceilings in the silent room. I had advised her to wear her demure tan-colored ones rather than her favorite Lucky Mermaid pumps that were covered in pure turquoise glitter and seashells, and I was glad she had taken my advice. Bubbles arrived at the stand, sitting down and looking down as she smoothed her skirt over her legs, though we couldn't see her from mid-torso down. It was one of her nervous habits. Just as well, she reached up to tuck some of her hair behind her ear, another nervous habit. The judge cleared her throat. Will the witness please stand to be sworn in by the bailiff? Flustered, Bubbles immediately jumped back up from her seat, biting down on her bottom lip in embarrassment. Sorry, she mouthed to Ms. Jackson. Ms. Jackson, ever the judge with the kindest, most down-to-earth personality, only slightly grinned with patience in response. The bailiff had made his way over to Bubbles, and she placed her left hand on the Bible he held out. Please raise your right hand, the bailiff requested. Bubbles complied. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? The stern-faced bailiff asked her in his deep voice. She nodded. Yes, I do. The bailiff took the Bible away. You may be seated. The state prosecution lawyer, Mr. Jones, stood, making his way over to the stand. He was very tall had curly hair that was cut short with thick sideburns, and he was properly dressed, unlike one of my sisters. Formally, he said, Good afternoon, Ms. Utonium. Thanks for being here. At his politeness, a slight grin cracked the state nervousness on Bubbles' face. Sure, she said. Mr. Jones got right to it. Ms. Utonium, let's talk about the incident almost four years ago, an incident that I'm sure most of this courtroom can recall the widely covered incident that transpired between your sister, Blossom Utonium, and the accused at a public park. My stomach flip-flopped. I certainly remembered that. I will never forget the humiliation. Even years later, at just the mere mention of the incident, I felt people seated in that courtroom turn their heads to look at me, and with my face carefully composed and shoulders held back, 
I resisted the urge to look at their expressions, to gauge their level of judgment. You mean the fake incident? answered Bubbles without missing a beat, a pleasant smile still on her face. The courtroom stirred collectively. I bit my lip to keep from bursting into a giggle. Buttercup, on the other hand, snorted audibly. I nudged her with my elbow. Mr. Jones raised his eyebrows. Do you mean to say that your sister Blossom attacking Princess Morbucks did not happen? Smile still intact, Bubbles nodded delicately. That's exactly what I'm saying, sir. Objection, cried a voice, and everyone turned to look at Princess's defense lawyer, Mr. White, standing up from his seat next to Princess. Your Honor, this witness is clearly trying to gaslight this courtroom. She's claiming an event that we all saw on the news didn't happen. That is outrageous. Mr. Jones calmly turned to Mr. White. Mr. White, my witness has not explained herself. Do not put words into her mouth. Mr. Jones is correct, Mr. White, the judge responded, her voice echoing and authoritative. You have interrupted the witness before she even had a chance to explain herself. Sit down. The defense lawyer did as she instructed, though not looking pleased about it. The judge nodded at Mr. Jones, signaling him to go on. He turned toward the jury, examining their faces, and then turned back to Bubbles, frowning. Ms. Utonium. How can you claim that this event did not happen when the accused was interviewed many different times over this incident? Simple, said Bubbles calmly. She lied. This time, I couldn't help it, I smiled. I turned my face downward to hide it. She lied? Mr. Jones repeated. For all his theatrical responses, he didn't seem all that surprised. About what? Come on, sis, I thought, reaching over to grab Buttercup's hand. Don't hold back. As if she had heard me, Bubbles really came through. About everything. Blossom would never attack any human with her powers, even when threatened. All of us know much better than to do that. Not to mention that if she had attacked Princess, Princess would have had to be put in the hospital. She didn't even have a scratch if you recall. The murmurs in the courtroom had grown to a hum, and the judge pounded her gavel. Order, she called out. Order in the court. The audience was silenced. So, what you're saying is, Mr. Jones paused for a couple of beats, probably for dramatic effect, the defense has a history of exaggerating stories in the media? A moment ticked by, and then the unthinkable happened, Bubbles smirked. She actually smirked. I was so proud. Well, that, said Bubbles, and a history of paying media sources to skew their stories in her favor. Obviously, that had been the exact response he'd been looking for. Mr. Jones smiled. Just like she had paid media sources after the Townsville Park battle to make you and your teammates appear to be incompetent and to sway public opinion against you? Yes. Objection. Mr. White cried out, jumping from his seat again. Hearsay. Overruled. Sit down, Mr. White, Ms. Jackson said again. Mr. White sat, petulant. More murmuring. Buttercup and I tightened our hold on each other's hands. She was killing it. Risking a glance over at Princess on the bench, she was glaring maliciously at Bubbles. Mr. Jones had turned to look at the jury once again, and then he turned back to Bubbles. All right, all right. 
let's switch gears, here. Going back to the incident four years ago, what sort of ramifications did this incident have for you and your sisters in your daily lives, outside of the media? Bubbles answered, well, it basically caused all our classmates to alienate us. Go on, he coaxed. She went on. Princess used all the media sensationalizing to her advantage, and she spread tons more rumors about us. She claimed that Blossom was crazy and that none of us could be trusted because of it. One by one, our classmates turned on us. They isolated us and stared at us and called us names. Even people who had been our friends had turned on us. Even your friends turned against you? Mr. Jones asked. Yes, sir. Mr. Jones, frowning, said next, Ms. Utonium, in your opinion, from that sole negative experience you had with the accused in high school, would it seem impossible to you that she could orchestrate the same effects outside of a high school setting? Not impossible at all, Bubbles responded. Really, at that point, she already had. People have brought up this incident for years, and it didn't even really happen. There are still people from all over the world that still believe that it really happened. What happened that day, exactly? Could you explain it to us? Mr. Jones folded his hands together, starting a slow pace in front of the stand. Blossom had a horrible morning, Bubbles started. Princess had caught her at her worst, called the paparazzi and told them of Blossom's location and then instigated a heated argument in public in order to make it look like an attack. To humiliate and demean her. Mr. Jones hummed. In short, we can all pull from your account that, at the very least, Princess Morbucks has made it a mission to verbally and perhaps emotionally harass you and your sisters for years now. Correct? Correct, replied Bubbles as she nodded. Buttercup and I also nodded, even though he hadn't been talking to us. One more question for you, Ms. Utonium, before I give the floor to defense, Mr. Jones said, stopping his pacing and standing in front of Bubbles again. Are there any other major instances of emotional abuse or bullying from the accused during your high school years that you can recall? Bubbles' eyebrows raised as she thought for a moment. I don't even know where to start, she admitted. Just one more is sufficient enough, Mr. Jones assured her. Bubbles paused. Then she frowned, looking downward into her lap. Silence ticked by. Suddenly, the defense lawyer sprang up from his seat again. I was beginning to wonder if there was some sort of launch mechanism on his chair. He was like a jack-in-the-box from hell. Your Honor, the witness is obviously stalling because she doesn't have any other instances of abusive behavior from my client. He placed air quotes around abusive behavior. My lip curled. Objection. Mr. Jones cried this time, turning to the judge. Your Honor, the defense is badgering the witness. And out of turn, at that. Order. Judge Jackson called, pounding her gavel once. She aimed a cutting scowl at the defense lawyer. Mr. White, if you do not sit down, and remain seated, I will be tempted to shorten your time to cross-examine the witness. I do not allow bullying in my courtroom. Mr. White, who had a rather large and pointy nose, quickly sat back down, face screwed up in annoyance. Princess looked equally annoyed. Two pinched-up rat-like faces. Mr. Jones turned back to Bubbles at the stand, looking at her patiently. Go on, Ms. Utonium. Buttercup leaned over to me. 
hey, she whispered to me, what's up with her? I had noticed, too. Throughout the lawyer squabbling, Bubbles had been staring downward, rubbing her head and frowning hard as if she were in pain. Something was up. I don't know, I whispered back. Of course, Bubbles finally answered, her voice thin. She cleared her throat. After the public park incident, at school, the princess spread false rumors. She started rumors about my sister being violent and bloodthirsty. The worst of the rumors she spread were that Blossom was planning to attack the whole school. Horrible rumors. They started out about Blossom, and then, as they spread, they included me, and Buttercup. She tilted her head, looking at Mr. Jones earnestly. These rumors lasted until we graduated high school, and they were severely hurtful and damaging, especially considering our jobs as superheroes. And they were especially hurtful because… She paused. Because the three of us were already dealing with some deep hurt stemming from our personal lives. I frowned. Somehow, it seemed like she had changed her mind and decided to rephrase her words at the last moment. What had she been about to say instead? But I suppose that didn't matter to the princess. Our hurt. Bubbles shook her head as she finished. It never mattered to her. A satisfied Mr. Jones nodded, glancing sideways at the jury, then he turned to the open courtroom. No further questions. He walked back over to his table pulling his chair out to sit down and taking a sip from a bottle of water. After a momentary pause, Judge Jackson announced, the defense may have the floor. Mr. White stood up from his seat, finally free, to take his turn. Slowly making his way over to the stand, he smirked at my sister, looking altogether creepy and predatory. My stomach churned. This was going to be maddening. Hello, Ms. Utonium. All politeness had wiped off Bubbles' face. Flatly, she said, hello. Mr. White cut to the chase. Ms. Utonium, can you honestly claim, without a reasonable doubt, that my client was truly so awful to you and your sisters? Bubbles paused, blinking. Yes, she said as if it were obvious. Really? Mr. White responded, rubbing his chin. Lawyers sure were dramatic. Well, consider this. Consider the fact that you and your sisters had never even considered letting my client join your super team and were prejudiced against her for being human. Consider the fact that you never even tried to be friends with my client and all you ever did was shut her out. I leaned forward, looking to where the princess was seated. Arms folded, she had a subdued smile on her face. So, this was their angle. Sympathy. That's not true, Bubbles answered, keeping her cool perfectly. We did try to be her friend once when we first met her. But then she tried to coerce her way into our team, and we had to turn her away. Coerce? Mr. White repeated with a laugh. You do realize you're talking about when all of you were five or six years old, don't you, Ms. Utonium? And you're telling us that an innocent five-year-old, he emphasized this point heavily, looking out at the crowd, could coerce someone? Bubbles nodded. Yes, she said. How would she be able to coerce you at such a young age? Mr. White shot back. Using her father's money, she answered. She gave a half shrug. She was always that way. Even from an early age. But we couldn't buy it. She shifted her gaze from Mr. White to Princess. 
and the fact that we were the only thing that couldn't be bought just egged her on more. Whispers. Mr. White was quiet for a moment, returning to the table where his briefcase sat, rifling through some papers momentarily. I looked at the princess again. Pale-faced rage was written all over her face as she whisper-barked sharp-tongued orders at him. Quickly, though, Mr. White turned back around, clearing his throat and seeming to regain his composure. Ms. Utonium, he started again, voice loud, you claimed that my client had purposely sought to humiliate your sister in that public incident four years ago, correct? Yes. What was it that could have possibly put your sister in such a dour mood that she would scream at my client for any reason at all, and in such an unhinged manner? And don't try to claim that your sister didn't scream at her. We all saw that footage. That was real. I swallowed hard, trying to will myself not to feel the humiliation. I couldn't remember why I had been in such a horrible mood in the first place, it was so long ago, and furthermore, memories from the night prior to that were still blank for me. It was the night we went to that teen club to celebrate our 16th birthdays. But I still couldn't remember most of that night. It was mostly blank for me. Did Bubbles remember? And did she remember why I had been so upset about it? I leaned forward, shooting Professor a panicked look. He deciphered its meaning immediately, and he leaned forward to whisper to Mr. Jones, likely to remind him of our memory issues that he had warned him of prior to today. Mr. Jones nodded grimly, looking back at the professor. Meanwhile, Bubbles was silent. She had looked down again, and she had an entire palm plastered to her forehead, her eyes squeezed shut. Mr. White was tapping his foot, full smugness returned to his face. A few more moments passed, and Mr. White spoke up, smugness leaking into his voice. May I remind you, Ms. Utonium, that you are under oath? Mr. Jones stood, preparing to interject if he needed to, medical papers detailing our memory loss in his hand, ready to hand them to the judge. Suddenly, Bubbles spoke, I. She trailed off and looked up, appearing dazed. Her eyes were slightly unfocused. She dropped her hand. Finally, she continued in a soft, shaky voice, yes. I remember. I, I'll tell you. Surprise jolted through me. I felt Buttercup sit up straight next to me. We traded looks with each other, then with Professor. Did she remember? When had she remembered this? Appearing confused, Mr. Jones sat back down again. Go on then, Ms. Utonium. Judge Jackson told her patiently. Answer Mr. White's question. Bubbles nodded, a determined frown on her face. She turned her eyes back to Mr. White and spoke succinctly. Blossom was upset that morning because the previous night, the three of us had attended a teen club called Electric Blue. At the club that night, the Rowdy Rough Boys were in attendance. And that night, the Rowdy Rough Brothers, the brothers who were once our sworn enemies until the events that very night. She hesitated, looking over at Buttercup and me in the crowd, the Rowdy Rough Brothers confessed to having romantic feelings for us. Gasps from all around. Murmurs and whispers. My jaw dropped. Even the judge had raised her eyebrows. I glanced at Princess again, she was gaping at Bubbles. No one had been expecting that. Quickly, I shut my mouth, before anyone could see, but squeezed Buttercup's hand. She turned her face into my hair, whispering so that no one else could hear, 
what the hell is she saying? Is she serious? I don't know, I mouthed back to her. Bubbles went on despite the widespread controversial reaction, the shock all three of us experienced from this night was enough to leave us in emotional turmoil for months afterward. So, the morning after, at the park where Blossom had gone alone in order to clear her thoughts, she was an on-edge and overwhelmed teenager. Don't you remember what it was like to be 16 and insecure? Princess had gone over to her to purposely upset her. Of course she'd. Snapped. She turned her face to the jury, eyes wide and sincere and brimming with tears. Wouldn't you have? My heart was pounding. I felt Buttercup's pulse, too, it was racing. What was Bubbles doing? Why was she lying on the stand? Then something occurred to me, what if she wasn't lying at all? But how could that have been the truth? How? The murmuring had risen in volume again, and the judge pounded her gavel. Order, she commanded. Mr. White had been standing very still. It was as if Bubbles' confession had rocked him to his core. He clearly hadn't been prepared for that. He shifted from foot to foot for a few moments, wrung his hands together, and then slowly, he turned to face the courtroom. No further questions, he said. Bubbles was dismissed from the stand. And then immediately, without even sitting down again, she excused herself, telling us that she had to use the restroom. She exited the courtroom quietly. As I watched her leave, my eyebrows drawn together in concern and confusion, I wondered if my sister had just lied, under oath, to an entire courtroom. I ran through the halls of the courthouse as best as I could in heels, ignoring the stairs, searching, knowing that the bathrooms had to be around there somewhere. Finally, I found the signs, and I rushed over to them, pushing through the door to the women's bathroom. I bent, checking for feet underneath all of the stalls. There were no feet. I was alone. Finally. I turned to the nearest sink, turning the cold water on high and splashing water on my arms, forcing myself to cool off and calm down. I gripped the sides of the sink with both hands as the water ran, peering up into the mirror, looking at my own wild, wide eyes as I breathed heavily. God, I said, between breaths. I was on the verge of sobbing. Oh my God. I remembered. A rooftop with stars. A soft touch. The moonlight that lit up the emotion on the curse of his face. Holding hands, reciting lines, to a play. A spirited argument in a high school hallway, followed by a kiss that changed everything. Cupcakes. Greek food. Afternoon flies. Slow dancing in the kitchen. Napping, heartbeats, and breathing that rose and fell together like the notes of a song. A head in my lap, nestled under my hands, shaking hysterical sobs that I could see but couldn't hear. All at once I remembered everything. Up on that stand, it was like the pressure of having to remember, needing to remember that one tiny detail, as all those eyes were on me, it made it all explode, like a tidal wave breaking through floodgates. That one little detail I recalled was the catalyst, made it all implode, and now I remembered it all. And now that I remembered, everything had changed. My whole world had changed. I needed to leave that place. Now. Right now, right that very moment. In one quick motion, I switched the water off on the faucet, and then I turned, then turned again, and my eyes locked on it, a window on the wall. My perfect. Escape.
I looked for a latch, and thankfully, there was one on the old window. I pushed the window open, pleased to find that there wasn't a screen on the outside. I lifted into the air, levitating through the open window, soundlessly and gracefully. It was wide enough for me to fit through without brushing up against the ledge or anything, so my hair and dress were untouched. When I got outside, I touched down into the lawn below. Teetering awkwardly across the grass on my heels for a few feet, I thought better of it, bending and lifting each foot to take my heels off, holding one in each hand. The lush grass was cool against my bare feet. I would have to make my getaway relatively unnoticed. The press would still be waiting outside the front doors, I knew that. I was on the back end of the building, so if I flew in the opposite direction of them, I would be home free. As I glanced to my left, I suddenly spotted a man standing several feet away from me, smoking a cigarette. He looked like a janitor. His eyes were locked on me, and he was frozen, seemingly in shock. He recognized me. Uh-oh. I lifted a hand, waving slightly. Hi there, I greeted. Hesitant, he lifted a hand in response, waving back awkwardly. I clasped both of my hands together in a pleading gesture. Please don't tell anyone you saw me leave like this. It's kind of an emergency. He blinked at me. Then, hesitant again, he nodded. Sure, he said. I won't. I sighed, relieved. Thank you. I said. Then, deciding I really needed to leave now, and fast, I gripped my shoes hard in my hands, preparing for liftoff. Then, being careful not to take off too fast, I lifted into the air, gently at first, slowly levitating upward. I heard the janitor guy's cigarette hit the ground. Then, away I flew, and I was gone. The feeling of speeding through the air, Townsville far beneath me, was incredible, strange, but in the most perfect way. There was once a time when I had believed that I would never be able to do this ever again. Feeling the air wrapped around me, whipping past me, feeling weightless, it felt like a miracle. Because it was. I made my way through the air, leaving deeper into downtown Townsville. And it was only then that I realized I had no idea where I was even going. I was going to find him. But thinking that wasn't enough. Because to begin with, I had no idea where he even was. I didn't know where he and his brothers lived now. And furthermore, I didn't even know if he would be home. What if he were somewhere else? He could be anywhere. I hadn't thought this through at all. Why did I think this was a good idea? Now I would have to fly all across town in search for him, like a crazy person. Of course, I remembered, I could technically teleport now. But our version of teleporting only let us teleport several feet at a time, like a stone skipping across a lake. And we still weren't fully used to doing it. Buttercup was the best at it right now. She had managed to teleport across 30 feet once, but afterward, she'd still had to lie down flat on the ground because of how much it had disoriented her. I barely had any practice doing it, so, what good would that do me now? Absolutely none. I needed my wits about me if I was going to find him. I needed all the focus I could get. And right now, being so far up in the sky wasn't helping me all that much. The fresh air gave me a clear head, but it definitely wasn't giving me any ideas. And ideas were what I needed most. I needed to be immersed in busy surroundings so I could better picture where he might be.
I decided that downtown might be my best bet after all, so I abruptly stopped moving forward, lowering myself far down toward the sidewalk below as gently as possible. I landed with my bare feet against the scorching pavement. I hissed in through my teeth. The heat didn't hurt me, but it didn't particularly feel good either. As I uncomfortably scrambled to place my shoes down so I could put them on again, I pictured my feet as two giant cookies baking in an oven. I had only grabbed a handful of people's attention as I had landed, but likely due to the current unrelenting sweltering heat, they kept moving, though not without staring at me first. The hot sidewalks were busy and packed full of people moving to get to their destinations without being outside too long or getting sunburnt. People walked past either side of me busily, and fortunately for me, many of them were distracted by their cell phones or getting to where they were going and didn't look up at me. I was grateful for that, I didn't think I could handle being mobbed for a second time today. My shoes now on, I observed my surroundings. Unrelenting sunlight glinted off the windows of the high skyscrapers which stretched up high above, the smell of gasoline filled the hot air, and regular city noises enveloped me. It had been so long since I'd been downtown. Too long. Now, I had to think. Where could Boomer be? Where could I start? I began to walk behind a group of people, following the flow of bodies so that I wouldn't stand out by standing in the middle of the sidewalk like a statue. As I walked, dipping my face downward and ducking behind the tallest member of the group I was following, I began to brainstorm. Where could he have been? Where, where, where? In the traffic-packed road next to me, a car stalled. The windows were rolled down, and Frank Sinatra was blasting out of its speakers. Frank sang of flying to the moon and playing among the stars. Just ahead, the traffic light turned green, and the sound of his singing faded as the car drove further away. The sound of it had immediately made something arise inside of me. That song. The slow dance in the kitchen. Our song. Baking the cakes. I bit back a gasp. A bakery. A lead. I finally had one. But think, Bubbles, my thoughts persuaded me. Think. What bakery would he be the most likely to go to if he were to go to any at all? The group ahead of me stopped at a crosswalk, preparing to cross the street. I paused behind them, keeping my face ducked down, letting my carefully styled loose waves hide my face as the wheels turned inside of my head. Not just any old, plain bakery, I realized. I had taken him to several regular bakeries before. He had enjoyed the treats, of course, but he didn't find the places themselves interesting. And that was what Boomer looked for the most in his eating establishments. He could be such a food snob, I remembered, biting my lip and choking back a giggle that had suddenly made its way up my throat. Atmosphere. They had to offer something else. Familial-like customer treatment. Interesting or unusual knickknacks on the walls that each told a story. Presentation of the food that made him want to whip out his sketch pad and draw his plate or a menu that offered things that were out of the box, different from the same old, same old. The group ahead of me began walking across the street. And before I could decide whether to follow them to continue hiding behind them, or to stay behind, the idea clicked with me so suddenly that I stopped and grabbed onto the telephone pole next to me, as if the force of the idea had almost knocked me over. Coffee. Boomer loved cafes. A bakery that also sold coffee. 
that had to be it. There were several bakeries in town. There were countless cafes in town. But there was only one place that was the combination of a bakery and a cafe, one that we had both been to together a handful of times, and loved. Mariah's Cafe. I was only blocks away from there. No longer caring about maintaining a low profile, I leaped, launching twenty feet into the air, and I sped off, ignoring the sounds of shouts and car horns below me. Flying around multiple bends of buildings, my heart seemingly racing ahead of me, showing me the way, the space of time felt like years, but was only seconds. Every move I made felt like slow motion. And when those seconds passed, and I made my last wild turn, so reckless, that Buttercup would have been proud of me, I finally spotted the bright purple building below. I had arrived. I landed so rapidly in the parking lot in front of Mariah's cafe, the ground shook and a few car alarms went off. It was a miracle I hadn't snapped a heel. My knees wobbling and my head spinning, I took several deep breaths, trying to gather myself as I looked around me, searching for that blue Audi. I didn't see one, not even any other blue cars. If he wasn't here at all, and I had been wrong, I didn't know what I would do. Would I give up? Would I just go back to the courthouse? Or would I have the courage to try another day to look for him? Would I even be able to handle this feeling for longer than I had been feeling it now, this uncertainty and restless, feverish anticipation that made me feel like twenty people were tap-dancing inside my stomach? The car alarms wailing around me urged on my anxiety and built it up and up, the soundtrack of this event. Why did I feel so intensely that this might be my last chance? That this moment was do or die? I took another deep breath. Hold it. Closed my eyes. Then I slowly let it out, opening my eyes again. I forced myself to walk forward toward the front door, bright purple, with a bright rainbow arched across, and a large butterfly painted over it. I pushed the door open, walking into the cafe. Once inside, momentarily, I froze right there by the door. I was scared to even look at my surroundings. I knew I would see tall tables, with stool chairs perched at each one, and the front counter, which held windows with many cupcakes sitting behind them, sample ones for each flavor that customers could choose from. They also had scones, cookies, pastries, muffins, ice cream desserts in the warm months, and cakes for special occasions that you had to order special on their website. Finally, I gathered the courage to walk up to the counter. Thankfully, there was a woman standing behind it, with hair that was styled into a 50s-style flip, but it was as purple as the building we were standing in. Her uniform name tag said Candy. She was looking at me with held breath, just as that janitor man had immediate recognition and surprise. I reached the counter. But to my surprise, before I could speak, she spoke to me first. You're here for him, aren't you? My stomach dropped. My heart dropped. My pulse skipped entirely too many beats. I swayed on my heels, feeling for a moment like I was going to fall straight over. Finally, I breathed to her, him? Shakily, I added, whispering, is he here? Outside, the car alarms came to a sudden stop. Almost looking relieved, the woman named Candy smiled at me. Then she shook her head. Oh, sweetie, she said to me, he comes here and waits for you every day. He's been waiting for you for so long. Weeks now. My pulse stuttered again. He. 
I gripped the counter with both hands, taking a quick glance around the cafe. He wasn't sitting inside, and there were only a handful of people there, including two teen girls eating a heaping bowl of a Korean shaved ice dessert with ice cream and fresh fruit on top. The two of them were looking at me curiously. I looked back at Candy standing behind the counter, finishing my sentence. He waits for me? Here? Seeing my confusion, Candy jabbed a finger toward the back of the cafe, a back door. In the garden, she said. She smiled again. Every single day. He's out there now, painting like he usually does. Just ordered his third iced coffee, she added with a chuckle. Sometimes I give him decaf just so he leaves here at the end of the day looking less jittery and nervous. Poor thing. I was shaking. I was shaking all over. Should. I pointed toward the back door, hesitating. Do you think I should? I trailed off when she began nodding, something like disbelief on her face. Um, yes. Yes, you should. One thousand percent, Candy said to me, then folded her arms and added under her breath, if I were twenty years younger and wasn't married, oh, to be young again. I was unsteady. Suddenly, I cursed my decision to wear high heels this morning, before I'd left the house. Suddenly I wished I'd put on my best perfume. I looked down, smoothing my dress, then reached up and smoothed my hair, rearranging it in the reflective surface of the counter window, making sure it wasn't windblown anymore. I swallowed back the stinging in my throat and the pin pricking in my eyes, I couldn't cry, not yet. I was terrified, but I wouldn't cry in the face of this. I would be brave. I straightened up, turning to her again. Do I look okay? Candy looked me up and down, then gave me a thumbs up. All good. You're a vision, she said to me, winking and leaning a curvy hip against the counter. Go get him, doll. I managed a timid smile this time, nodding. Then, slowly, I walked over to the door leading to the back garden, my shoes clicking against the wood floor. Click, 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 click. Step, 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 step. One, two, three, four. I reached for the door handle, pulling, opening the back door slowly. Then I stepped outside into the garden. Mariah's Cafe was first known for their mind-blowing cupcakes. They were secondly known for their back garden. I had last seen it in the fall, but that had been when it was in the process of drifting asleep for the incoming winter. Now that it was summer, the garden was fully awake, and I had stepped into a fairy tale book. The air was humid and rich, with the scent of heady earth. Willow trees surrounded the circular garden, and it was like a tall, lush, green curtain encasing the area. Abundant tall grasses, flowers sprouting in every direction, I had never seen so many rose bushes in my whole life. Lilies, tulips, orchids, peonies. Thick, heavy green plants that shot up from the ground, surrounding benches, and covered tables with chairs at them. A babbling, small fountain at the far, right-hand side of the garden, where visitors would go to toss coins into and make wishes. And at the center of the circle-shaped garden, a white, wooden gazebo. The center of which sat a single table, with two chairs at it. One of the chairs was currently taken. And there he was. Partially drunk iced coffee on the table in front of him, and a stand with a canvas on it, a portion of the garden landscape partially painted on it. Immediately, he sensed me. 
because by the time my eyes had found him, Boomer was already staring at me. My pulse, already wild, went into overdrive. Setting his thin paintbrush down onto the table, he slowly stood from the chair he'd been seated in. But he made no move toward me. He was beautiful, and I couldn't believe he was real and in front of me. Tall, sun-bleached hair, sun-darkened skin, expressive eyes in a sharp face. Dressed for the weather in long shorts and a light t-shirt, but not sweaty at all, like he hadn't been out here sitting in the heat for hours. He was a masterpiece. A. Powerful longing, sweet and painful, banged into my chest and spread throughout my body. The two of us stood like that, staring across at each other for moments that drew out and felt like years. I read his face, his expression was daunted, unsure. And maybe restrained. And suddenly I didn't know what I'd been thinking, ambushing him like this. That woman had told me that he'd been waiting for me. But there was no guarantee he fully remembered me yet, maybe not that way. He had remembered this place and had known to come here to see me. But what if he just wanted to talk? What if he just wanted answers, as me and my sisters had? What if he wanted to see me instead of professor, to confirm some of his memories of me, and that was all? What if I had jumped to conclusions and gotten my hopes up? Any number of things could go wrong with a spontaneous meeting like this, with no military-grade barriers between us. I should have been running away. I should have been escaping while I still had the chance, in case the only way he remembered me was as his sworn childhood enemy. That's what my logic was screaming at me, and I knew that I should have been listening. But I couldn't listen. Because my instincts were telling me that I had to do this. That it was important that I was here right now, staring at him. That it was important that I at least tried. Because nothing would haunt me for the rest of my days greater than the regrets I would have if I never took this risk, this ginormous leap of faith that could either be a train wreck or would without a doubt change my life. So, I took one more step forward into the terrifying unknown. And I smiled, and I tried not to let fear overwhelm my voice as I asked him, as I had asked him a thousand times before, how's my prince? Astonishment spread across Boomer's face all at once, though I couldn't tell if it looked more like outrage. I could hear his heartbeat from where I was standing, it skittered. Another agonizing moment pulsed by, and for a millisecond I thought I had made a horrible mistake and I would have to fly away from him and never return. But then his face softened. The look in his eyes changed, suddenly he was looking at me the way I had forgotten he'd looked at me and the way I wanted him to look at me until the end of time. And on a sigh, a sigh that sounded like it contained relief, the sheer weight of a hundred thousand pounds within it, he replied in a voice so gentle, so achingly familiar, that my eyes immediately welled up with tears. How's my princess? A sob released from my throat, and I blinked, tears falling down my cheeks and trailing into my smile, and then, within seconds, he was right in front of me, wrapping his arms around me as my arms found him back and locked around him. You waited for me? I asked, between racking sobs. And surrounding me was his t-shirt, his scent that reminded me of summertime itself, the sound of his joyful laughter vibrating through me and echoing in my head, him, him, him. Of course, I did. I told you, I'd always be here for you. And you came, he said through his laughter. You found me. He had said that. And he'd kept his promise once again. I was trying so hard to respond, but my tears kept choking me, 
and I couldn't say anything. So, I just clung to him and buried my face in his chest and sobbed and sobbed. God, I missed you so much, he went on. He kept leaning down to kiss the top of my head. I felt every word that he said rattle in his chest. The sound of his voice was the most beautiful composition I'd ever heard. I've been so sick of you. I barely slept or eaten. I was so worried you wouldn't remember me, or this place. I was so worried that you wouldn't find me. You came. You finally came. Sobbing so hard that I was now hiccuping, with my arms around him still, I took my face away from his shirt and came up for air and looked at him. I wanted to say something meaningful, to unscramble my brain and make myself spit out everything I had planned to say to him, but instead, I said between hiccups, I can't breathe. Boomer smoothed his hands up and down my back. Easy. Breathe, he said. Then, taking both of my hands, he began to lead me over to the gazebo. Here, let's sit down. Come here. I let him walk me over to the steps of the fairy tale gazebo. I sat unsteadily on the lowest step, and he sat two steps above me. Then, with one gentle hand, he laid my head across his lap. There. Better? I nodded, my breathing already starting to calm. My tears had slowed, but my face was still wet. I knew my makeup had to be totally ruined. Not that I cared, really. Not anymore. I can't believe I forgot you, I said softly, shaking my head and grasping his left knee in my hand. He brushed my hair back, which had fallen into my face. I was growing it out again, and its length was already starting to trail between my shoulder blades. It's okay, he replied. That's all over now. Besides, it wasn't for long. It could have never been for too long, I said. I gripped his knee tighter in my hand. I don't know what was wrong with me before, if it was some kind of, glitch in my brain or something. I don't know. But what matters now is that once I remembered who you truly are to me, it all came back to me. I turned. Slightly, looking upward to see him bending down over me, the sunlight touching the outer edges of his hair. You're unforgettable, I said. Slowly, humbly, the corners of Boomer's mouth lifted. Back at you, he said. I adjusted again, letting go of his knee and twisting so that my head rested back against his leg, and my view became his face dipped down over me, and the roof of the gazebo, and the blue sky beyond it. The view of dreams. I took a breath to ask something when abruptly, my bra buzzed. Sorry, hold on, I told Boomer as he looked down at my chest in bewilderment. I reached down into my bra and pulled out my phone. Oh, he said with a laugh of realization. No pockets on this dress, I explained with a grin, then I unlocked my phone screen. Must be handy, Boomer commented, gesturing to his own chest as if he were talking about a specially made carrying case. Then he blushed and forced his hand back to his side, realizing the accidental innuendo he'd made. It was good to know he was nervous too, and it wasn't just me. Oh, a text, I said, smoothly changing the subject as I stared at my phone screen, burying a smile. It's probably my sisters wondering where I am. Sure enough, as I opened the newest text, I read Buttercup's name there. Did you fall in the toilet? I scoffed aloud at her crass question. Oh, Buttercup, I said, scrunching my nose as I began to type up a response. Where were you before? 
Boomer asked, curious, seemingly recovered. I remembered, was my response to Buttercup. I wanted to test the waters, just in case she might have remembered Butch too. I hit send. Over at the courthouse, testifying against the princess. I pointed in the general direction of where I'd come. Boomer's eyebrow shot up. The princess? More bucks? Ex-Queen B, ex-tormentor of everyone princess, who just got booked. I nodded, pursing my lips. That's the one. Are you still supposed to be there? He asked, concerned. I froze, considering that for a moment. Then, oddly, I giggled. I have no idea, I said honestly. Hopefully, I wasn't in trouble. My phone buzzed. Remembered what, you weirdo? Are you still here? Was Buttercup's response. I sighed, discouraged. I don't think Buttercup or Blossom remember yet. I looked up at him. Do Butch and Brick remember them, too? He nodded. They both do. Then he admitted, the three of us have been playing the waiting game for a while. A mix of guilt and relief banged inside me. I'm gonna tell her. Maybe it'll help trigger a memory to come back to her. I typed up a two-part response to Buttercup, hoping that it would help, even if just a little bit. So, where have you been all this time? I asked him. I'm curious. Where have you been living? He grinned slightly. Well, thanks to Professor, we haven't been homeless. Sending Buttercup my response, I looked up at Boomer, slack-jawed in surprise. Really? He convinced the mayor to provide us an apartment, he said. It's a penthouse downtown, only a few blocks away from here, all paid for by the city. Professor also talked to the mayor and Ms. Bellum about our memory situations, so we were given time off to recover, just like you guys. So, when we moved into the apartment, we each found things to do with our time during the day. I've been coming here mostly, but sometimes I go to the art museum too. Butch is taking a summer class, being trained at a car garage, learning to upgrade old models, and Brick's been volunteering around the city. Sweetie, that's great, I said, smiling and reaching up with one hand to stroke the side of his face. His skin was so soft that it made me want to tear up again. That's so great. I was so happy to hear about the boys' lives over the past few months. Before I couldn't fathom what might be happening with them, though I was curious. I was happy that they'd been doing their own things, finding their own ways to recover, just as we had. It was okay, he said. Then he admitted, it would have been better with you there with me. You would have loved the pop art exhibit the museum had in late May. He enclosed my hand on his cheek with his own hand. I wish we could have shared that. I kept stroking his cheek with my thumb. He leaned into my touch like a cat, closing his eyes. My heart constricted. The last time we saw each other, I started, voice low, it was weird, wasn't it? Boomer nodded, opening his eyes again, smile fading. It was, he replied. Letting go of my hand, he reached down, wrapping his arms around me as he scooted down onto the step just above the one I'd sat on. Then he brought me closer to him, holding me in his lap, placing my legs over his. That was much better. I kept his face in my hand again, not having to reach as far now. You felt like a stranger to me, I said. I can't believe I ever felt that way. I did too, he said reassuringly.
He shook his head, frowning. Until that day that we saw each other again, I couldn't remember you, but after that day, I couldn't get you out of my mind. He slowly turned his face inward toward my fingers, brushing his lips against them as his gaze locked on mine. I saw your face every time I closed my eyes. I felt like I was losing it. I said nothing, only just reached up with my other hand, played with his hair, and let him talk. Hearing his side of this experience was so reassuring, it made me feel less crazy, especially since my own sisters hadn't remembered yet. He went on. The only thing that helped me feel sane was drawing you. So, I started to draw you every day. Just to try to get you out of my head. He paused. Then he shrugged one shoulder. Obviously it didn't work. Because shortly after that, I started coming here every day. I sat straight up, staring at him. You drew me? As far as I'd known, he hadn't drawn me before. I had begged him to draw a portrait of me a handful of times a while ago, but he hadn't, saying he didn't think he could capture me well enough. Boomer's smile at my excitement was tender. Want to see? he asked. I nodded, eager, hands dropping to my sides. Boomer leaned to the side, taking out his cell from his back pocket and unlocking the screen. After opening a few things, and then a few swipes, he handed his phone to me with a shy look on his face. I took the phone gently, looking down at the first drawing and flipping the phone into landscape mode as I gasped. This first one was just my eyes. Large and with irises that were a kaleidoscope of seemingly a million shades of light blue, framed by long eyelashes. That was what I couldn't forget at first, he said quietly. Your eyes. After taking another long few moments to appreciate this one, I slowly swiped to the next one. This one was just a long cascade of blonde, curling, shining, and glistening and seemingly moving on the page. My hair. Quietly, I moved on to the next one. It was a full-body portrait of me sitting on a cloud, legs bent up and my arms wrapped around them, and I wore clothes that were made of clouds, too. My head was leaned on my knees, and my eyes were closed like I was sleeping. The next one, a head and shoulders portrait. Drawing me was staring at the viewer of the drawing, bewildered and perturbed. Was that how I had looked when I stared at him through the glass wall? The next, a portrait of me flying up into the air, my hand reaching back to take another hand that stretched out toward me, his hand, so that I could lead him to wherever we were going. This one looked like it had taken him days to complete. Every detail was precise. The stitching on the jeans I wore, every strand of hair that flew out behind me, even the glare from the above sunlight looked like it was real. And that was what made me realize that he had drawn memories of me, too. There was a portrait of the two of us, taking a selfie as we sat on something that was up high, the Townsville Bridge. I remembered that. Another portrait of me standing in a place that was shadowy, but a wide expanse of stars behind my head. Another portrait from the night of electric blue, the image of me lying on his chest as we looked up at a shooting star. There were more head and shoulder portraits. Portraits of my face, surrounded with glossy hair and beautiful eyes making every kind of expression imaginable. Seeing myself as he saw me, I couldn't believe it. Boomer, I said finally, my voice catching with emotion. I don't even know what to say. They are so beautiful. I looked up at him finally after seeing the last drawing, and he was watching me, vulnerable. He swallowed hard.
So are you, he said. I flushed shyly at his compliment, even though it wasn't nearly the first time he'd called me beautiful. But it felt like the first time all over again. I handed him his phone back, and he took it, locking the screen again as he returned it to his back pocket. So, I need to ask, how did you find me here, he asked. Then he smiled, clarifying, I mean, I wanted you to, and of course, I had hoped. Because that's why I kept coming back every day. But, how did you figure it out? How did you know I would be here? I paused, thinking, leaning against his shoulder. Well, after I remembered you, I just tried to think of all the places you might be. And then I remembered how many times we'd come here. I wasn't sure you'd be here, but I hoped. And thank God I was right. Then I thought some more, thinking back to how we'd come together the first time, in high school. Come to think of it, you've always been the one to come to me. So, I had to be the one to come to you this time. I smiled up at him. And I couldn't wait another second to do it. I'm glad you didn't wait. He leaned his face over to me, pressing a kiss to my forehead. Me, too, I said, relishing in the press of his lips against my skin. My fingers nodded in the front of his t-shirt, keeping him close to me. I was going crazy, Boomer said darkly. It made me laugh. Sorry. I promise it wasn't on purpose. I tilted my face up toward him, keeping just enough distance between our faces to tease him. Forgive me? Boomer let out a long breath, the corner of his mouth turning up in a half grin. I never held it against you. We both did what we needed to as we recovered. I could never be mad at you for something you couldn't help. He looked down at my legs, gripping my shin in one of his hands, running it up and down my skin. I just missed you like crazy. Even before I knew that it was you that I was missing, there was still this whole part of my life that felt empty. I watched his hand on my leg. Suddenly, I felt the heat outside in a completely different way. I felt that too, I said. The emptiness. Though I hadn't known what had caused it, I had stayed constantly busy with my sisters, trying to fill a gap. A gap that I knew hadn't been there before. I had thought it was just the memories I had lost, and in a way, it was, it was all of my memories of him. It wasn't until now that I realized that there's so much to fill my life with. So many things I've missed out on doing because I had been so focused on what I was supposed to be. He looked up at me again, I serious. I still want to be a superhero. But, I want to be an artist, too. A smile burst on my face. So do it. He went on, rambling. I mean, there's nothing that says that a guy couldn't do both, right? No international rules to superhero dom. It's always something that I've wanted, I was just too afraid to tell people, because it wasn't what was expected of me, and because it was the polar opposite of who I was in the past. Before I said that I would be an artist if I were human, but I want it now. And nothing says that I would have to lack superpowers to accomplish that other dream. Of course not, I said. My heart was pounding hard again at the passion that had lit him up from the inside. So do it. I don't know what my brothers think. I haven't told them. They've seen all the drawings of you that I've made, and all the paintings I've made, but they haven't said anything. Do you think they think that it's lame? Is it lame that I just want to fly to every place I could think of, see the entire world with you, and just paint everything? It's probably not cool, but so what?
I don't care what they think. I don't care what anyone thinks. Not my brothers, not the entire freaking city of Townsville, not the world. I just want to be happy and create, is that so bad? Boomer. I stopped him, planting my hands on either side of his face and squishing his cheeks. He stared at me with wide eyes, coming back down from his ranting fervor. I looked into his eyes. Do it. Now he looked dazed. Huh? Do it. Be whoever you want. Do whatever you want to do, I told him. And I promise to be right there next to you, for all of it. Loving you no matter what might happen. Boomer's gaze had zeroed in on mine again, and his face had softened. His hands closed over mine, still on his face. All I want is you, art, and happiness. I'm already yours. I closed my eyes, brought my forehead to rest against his. And you can make whatever beautiful art that you want. So, that only leaves one question. What's that? Boomer sounded breathless. I opened my eyes again. They gazed into his eyes. Are you happy? To my surprise, Boomer laughed, leaning back slightly and adjusting me in his lap, pulling me even closer to him. Well, let's see. You flew all the way across downtown to find me. You remembered that we're desperately in love. And now you're in my arms. His look of laughter faded, giving way to a gaze full of intoxicating rapture that immediately made me weak inside and out. I'm the happiest I could possibly be. Letting go of his face, I wrapped my arms around his neck. Then I guess all that's left is to see the world together, so that you can paint all of it, I said. Where do we start? Hmm. Boomer pursed his lips together, thinking. His answer came a few moments later. Milan. In delight, I responded, Italy? He nodded, biting his bottom lip with a smile. I want to see the art at the Pinacoteca di Brera, wander through every single gallery, holding your hand. He leaned in toward me, stealing a kiss on my cheek. He spoke close to my ear. I want to stand outside of the Duomo di Milano Cathedral and paint it. I want to take you to a fancy restaurant and eat fine Italian seafood and mind-blowing pasta. He kissed my other cheek, this time lingering with his lips against my skin longer. I held my breath. Boomer leaned back again, lifting his eyebrows as he said, take you shopping at the Galleria Vittorio Emanuele too. Oh, God. It was amazing, all of it. I wanted it all. But most of all, I wanted him. Forever. Boomer saw the wanting in my eyes, because slowly, he leaned, eyes darkening to the deepest, most penetrating blue. You want it, don't you? he asked, voice soft. With me? My throat was dry. I swallowed. More than anything. He leaned even closer. The tip of his nose brushed mine. My love, he said, lips teasing delicate against mine, melting me, for as long as we live, you'll have it all. And then his lips took mine. The world swirled and my lungs collapsed, and I pulled him closer as our mouths moved and his hand went into my hair. He consumed me, and I consumed him, symphonies rising and falling inside of me, swelling and building and filling my senses. I kissed Boomer the way I hadn't even realized I'd been needing to for months now, desperate, I kissed him with all the love I'd always held for him, for the pieces of me that he had hidden inside of him, 
for the pieces of him that were inside of me. When we broke apart to catch our breath, a flurry of monarch butterflies, the largest flurry of butterflies I had ever seen in my life, there had to have been hundreds of them, burst through the garden in a sudden explosion of color. I gasped as I stared at them, and Boomer kissed my cheek and the side of my chin, exhaling blissfully against me as he tucked hair behind my ear. The butterflies flew into the willow trees that bordered the garden, settling onto their long strands of leaves and resting there, making the curtains of green dance with orange and black. Speechless at what we had just beheld, I rested my forehead against Boomer's again, sighing. So, when should we go to Milan? I could hardly contain my excitement as I asked. The only warning I had was Boomer's hands tightening on my lower back and in the crook of my knee. Right now. Then he stood up and leaped with all his strength, soaring past the roof of the gazebo and shooting straight up into the sky. I squealed, at first hugging tightly against him, then remembering that I could fly, too. Are you crazy? I asked him, not able to control my laughter as he stalled in the air right above Mariah's cafe. You want to go now? What about your paint? Supplies? I pointed down at the gazebo where his canvas, stand, and paint still sat. He shrugged, beaming. Candy will bring it in for me, keep it safe for when I come back for it. I'm her favorite regular. Boomer gave me a funny look then, looking like he had thought of something. I smiled. What is it? She's looking for new bakers, you know. He nodded at me, a tangle of blonde falling into his eyes. I think you would like working there. I glanced down at the purple building, considering. I hadn't thought about working at a bakery seriously before, at least not before now. It sounded kind of nice. I'll think about it, I said. I reached up, brushing his hair out of his face. Now, you don't have to carry me the whole way. If you don't mind, I'd at least like to fly alongside you. I lifted out of Boomer's grasp, lowering myself to levitate beside him. I gave him a teasing nose scrunch. It's the 21st century. A lady can fly herself places when she wants. Boomer took my hand in his, waggling his eyebrows. Yes, ma'am. He kissed my hand, and I giggled. Then we turned toward the horizon, took off, and we escaped. We flew out of Townsville, out of state, and made the journey over the Atlantic Ocean to Europe for our impulsive daytime trip. Miraculously, I didn't lose my shoes. We started our new lives together that day. Boomer bought new paint supplies in a hidden away hole in the Wall Art Store, and we explored Milan together. That was just the first of our many adventures. We had firmly learned not to take this for granted. Our health, our powers, what we were capable of, and most importantly, our love. So we dove in, doing all we could because we could. And we never looked back. Where did Bubbles go? Blossom whispered to me. I looked to the door she had disappeared through, frowning. I thought she was just going to the bathroom? The both of us had been sitting here on edge since the scene our sister had caused with her testimony. I don't think either of us could figure out whether she'd been lying or not, we didn't want to accidentally let someone overhear our doubt for our own sister, though, so we both had kept our mouths shut until now. We'd only exchanged worried glances. And it wasn't that we didn't trust Bubbles, of course we trusted her, we just couldn't remember any memories for ourselves that backed up her claims of what had happened that night at Electric Blue. 
The both of us had looked over at Professor after she'd said it, though, and he hadn't seemed surprised at all. All of this was so weird, and confusing, I didn't know what to believe now. I thought so too, Blossom said. Her face was pinched with worry. It's been 15 minutes, why isn't she back yet? Hold on, I said, taking out my phone as I made sure no one was looking. Hidden in my lap, I texted Bubbles. Did you fall in the toilet? I sent it, then stealthily hid my phone between my hands flat against my legs. I leaned over to Blossom. Let's see if she responds, I whispered, and she nodded. We only had to wait one minute before she responded. My phone buzzed, my hands absorbing the sound of the vibration so that no one else could hear. Sneakily, I took a peek at my screen as I opened the message from her. I remembered, was all it said. I frowned, leaning slightly over again, showing the message to Blossom. Remember what, she whispered back to me. Did she go somewhere? I shook my head. I didn't know either. I typed, echoing Blossom's sentiment. Remembered what, you weirdo? Are you still here? I sent it. Prosecution, you may call your second witness, said the judge. Prosecution would like to call witness Buttercup Utonium to the stand, said the prosecution lawyer. Scrambling, I shoved my phone back into my pocket. Just as I stood, I felt my phone buzz. Cursing mentally that I wouldn't be able to read Bubbles' reply until after I stepped off the stand, I sighed and walked over to the stand to be sworn in. Good afternoon, Ms. Utonium, the prosecution lawyer, said to me after I swore in, whose last name was Jones. I preferred Jonesy. Thank you for coming here today. Don't mention it, I said, feeling my own wryness in my voice. It wasn't like I had a choice in coming or anything. And if I'd had a choice between coming here and having to see Princess's mug and staying home to continue my Friday the 13th movie marathon, I would have chosen the one where I wouldn't have had to put on pants or brush my hair. All right, Ms. Utonium, Jonesy said. Could you give me an idea of what your past experiences with the defendant were like? Well, I started, folding my arms. For one, we were constantly arresting her as kids. Could you elaborate? Jonesy asked. The way he talked reminded me of Professor. Elaborate how? I asked, frowning. How much more clear could I get? Tell us why the defendant would often be arrested by you or your sisters when you were kids, he explained. So, put it as laid out as possible. I could do that. Okay, I said, unfolding my arms and straightening in my chair. Well, she was always going after us with something that her daddy bought for her, like an expensive super robot or some other kind of weapon. And citizens would always wind up getting between us and getting hurt, and she didn't care. Sometimes she would attack the city on purpose, to call us out and force us to pay attention to her. She always wanted us to take her seriously as a villain. She was constantly trying to prove herself. I nodded in her direction with my head, though I didn't look at her. Even now, too, I guess. So, you echo your sister's earlier sentiments, that Princess Morbucks had always been a villain throughout her childhood years? I said, sure do, Jonesy. He smiled politely. Don't call me that, please. I smirked. Sorry, I said. I'd still think so. Jonesy went on. 
So, if Princess had been a villain as a young child, what changed in middle school? Did she continue her villainous ways when you all got older? Not really, I said, thinking about this. I hadn't thought about this in a while. Come to think of it, I think middle school was around when she started, embracing the heiress life. She began practicing using her popularity and money to manipulate all our schoolmates. I guess it was a different kind of power that she used for a while. Social power? Jonesy confirmed. I nodded, pleased that he got what I was trying to get across. You got me, I said. Once she discovered the power of being the queen bee of the school, that seemed to be her focus for the rest of our time growing up. We thought she was done trying to be a supervillain. I shrugged. Until now. Objection. Princess's annoying lawyer jumped up from his seat once again. Your Honor, this witness is only inferring what she believes to be true about my client, seemingly based on nothing. Immediately I stood from my seat, glare locked on him. You calling me a liar? The judge pounded her thing that looked like a hammer. Order. Sit down, Mr. White. The witness will speak what she believes to be the truth per Mr. Jones' questions. Wait your turn and be quiet. White sat down again, looking irritated. The judge turned to me next, saying, sit, Ms. Utonium. I'll handle the interruptions from here. I sat again, nodding, but shooting another quick glare at Princess's lawyer, who was just as snooty as she was, it turned out. Sighing, the judge gestured to Jonesy. You may continue. Jonesy continued. So, Ms. Utonium. You said that she became the popular girl at your school in middle school and high school, he said, looking unaffected by the interruption. Does that mean that during this time, she was mostly harmless? I laughed. No, for sure not, I replied bluntly. She just found subtle ways to be awful. Bubbles said that the accused spread rumors about you after the park incident, he said. Did she spread rumors about you three before that, as well? All the time, I said. But they were never taken as seriously. After the park thing, it all changed. She'd become this, idol or something. Everyone suddenly believed everything she said because nationwide, the media had validated her. Suddenly she'd become this person for people to look up to, all based on a lie. It was like, watching the majority of our high school join a cult or something. It was the weirdest. He responded, would you say that, because of her status and money, Princess had influence before, but once the mainstream media had begun giving her widespread attention, her influence grew to gargantuan heights? I narrowly avoided snorting at the word gargantuan, managing to keep a poker face. Yeah, I would say that, I said. So, would it be so ridiculous to think that she might use this large influence that she'd accumulated over these years to frame all of you in a large way now, to try to compromise your careers? Jonesy was on a roll. He was a smart guy, I'd give him that. No, I said, impressed. Actually, it would make a lot of sense. And would it make sense that this sort of influence and expertise in manipulation from her years of practice on her own peers in high school would translate over to the social hierarchy of the villains of Townsville? That she might be able to convince even other villains to do as she asks? I nodded slowly. Yes, I said. It would make perfect sense to me. 
For the first time since we'd arrived there, I allowed myself to look directly over to Princess. She looked livid. Deliberately, I grinned as she watched. You're going down, I thought. No further questions, Jonesy announced, turning around and walking back over to his table. I shifted in my chair, glancing over at Blossom. She only nodded at me in approval. I grinned back at her. After a few moments, the judge said, the defense may have the floor. I realized that this meant I would have to talk to that smarmy-faced lawyer that worked for Princess as soon as I looked to see him stand up from his seat. Ugh. Great. Ms. Utonium, White said to me, slinking over, to the stand like a snake. Good afternoon. I apologize for my outburst earlier. I hope we can start this on a good note. I raised an eyebrow. Now he was trying to make nice? He could keep it. It was probably just so he would look better in front of the judge and jury, anyway. Let's cut to the chase, shall we? I said, voice flat. I heard a snort, and I turned to see the bailiff, concealing a slight smile underneath his hand. At least someone in this courtroom had a sense of humor. White looked at me, blinking in surprise at my answer, then cleared his throat. Well, then, all right. Let's get straight to it, then. I raised both eyebrows at him. Let's. Ms. Utonium, White started, earlier, you claimed that your high school classmates all rallied against you and defended Princess after the park incident. I blinked, then choked out a laugh, before I said, that's not exactly what I said, really, but okay. White turned, his back facing me. That's true. You compared it to watching helpless people looking up to a cult leader, he admitted. I wondered what his goal was in repeating my own words back to me. Yeah, I said warily. Yes, he said back to me. You said that. And I found it interesting, to say the least. I sighed. He was clearly trying to bait me. All right. I'd bite. And why is that? I asked, my tone dry. Ms. Utonium, tell me, White paused, turning slightly toward me again. His face had changed, he looked at me now like a predator as he asked me, when was it exactly that you started to hold such contempt for humans? A few gasps came from the audience. Both my eyebrows shot up my forehead. Was this guy for real? After stopping for a moment to get past my shock, I replied, pardon? Cruel contentment was all over this snake's face. Please answer the question, Ms. Utonium. How about never? I answered, folding my arms tightly. Does that answer your question? So, you deny hating humans? White asked. My mouth worked for a few moments, my face flushing in anger. I couldn't believe he was asking me this. Why would I hate humans? I countered. Hell, how could I? Why couldn't you or your sisters let Princess Morbucks join your team? It was because she's a human, was it not? Not just that. I bit out. It was way more than that. My sister told you that the princess tried to coerce us with her money. But her being a human was a contributing factor in your decision to not let her join. Do you deny that? I floundered for a second. No, but... He cut me off. So you wouldn't let a human on your team solely because they don't have powers. Correct? 
really pissed off now, I burst out, yes. Okay? White paused for a long moment, suddenly calming as a low murmuring moved through the courtroom. Then the slow, snake-like grin appeared on his face again, for a moment, before it disappeared. I see, he said, turning his back to me again. Realizing what he'd just made me admit, and how it must have looked, I scrambled, adding, but it wasn't an exclusion thing. He turned slightly, looking at me over his shoulder. Oh? He had me in the palm of his hand now somehow. I didn't know how he'd done that, but I hated it. I hurried ahead, wanting to make myself clear. We didn't keep her from joining, because she wasn't like us. I mean, we barely knew her, so that was another thing. And the coercion thing. But it's more than that. We just. I trailed off. Something else, some entirely different point, had grabbed me, and I ended up saying, you don't know what it's like. White's eyebrows lifted. Beg pardon? You don't know what it's like, I said again, then finished, to be like us. To do what we do. I looked out at the courtroom. None of you do. You don't know what it takes. Even when you have superpowers. I had seemed to capture everyone's attention now, even White's. He seemed intrigued. Go on, he said. I had suddenly become very sober. I didn't feel like mocking or joking around now. The things we've seen. The things we've gone through. You don't get it. I stared out at all the faces staring at me. And we do all of it to protect you. Everything we've ever done was to protect you. I looked back at White now. Do you know the kind of sacrifice that is required? What kind of guts do you need to have? I went on before he could answer. Not just for fighting villains. The other stuff too. The protecting. Do you know how many freaking suicides we prevent on Townsville Bridge each year? A low murmuring passed through the room again. I stared hard at White, forcing him to answer me. Finally, he said, reluctantly, a lot, I assume? I nodded once. More than you could possibly imagine. Something nasty, something dark and guilty stirred inside of me. I leaned forward, holding my gaze on him. And do you know how horrible it feels when one or two slip through the cracks, and we're too late? The room was dead silent. I nodded again. After what me and my sisters went through over the winter, we finally learned what it was like to suffer as humans do. It's an experience that I will never be able to forget. Just like I'll never be able to forget about those times over the years, since I was a child, that I failed saving someone and saw their lives getting taken away from them. And you suggest that my sisters and I hate humans? Ever so slowly, I shook my head, sitting back against the chair again. How dare you? White stood there for a moment, looking at me with a stunned look on his face. I'd finally knocked him off the mountain of his ego, and I'd surprised him once again. Then he broke his gaze from me and looked down at the floor, beginning a slow pace back and forth in front of me for a few moments before he finally said something. It seems we've gotten far off topic here. His voice was quiet. Let's get back to facts. And the fact is, Princess being a human was a contributing factor to you and your sisters not allowing her to be a part of your team. I sighed heavily. Were we really going back to this again? Okay, yeah, I admitted, hoping that he would just move on already. So what? 
So, this was the catalyst that led to Princess disliking you, White answered, looking at me again. Do you blame her for disliking you, because of that? I shrugged. No, I said, voice flat. Lots of people dislike us. As evidenced by the amount of the public that immediately turned on us, given the first opportunity. I nodded over at the princess again. Which I'm sure was her plan by manipulating the media in the first place. Do you have photographic evidence of Princess Moorbucks doing this so-called manipulation? Well, I paused, wondering if this was some trick question. No? I finally finished. I glanced over at Blossom, sitting in the crowd. She looked frustrated. At the prosecution table, Jonesy had his head leaned on one hand, rubbing his temple with the other. Oh. Had I answered wrong? No. White cried out suddenly, making me jump and look back at him. A big, triumphant grin was on his face as he turned to the jury box. No. There is no photographic evidence, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. So, who's to say that prosecution isn't simply, exaggerating, to make my client look bad? I interjected, amazed that he even just said, we don't have to make her look bad. My voice rose. She's already done that herself. And she's never given a shit about looking good before now. The judge cleared her throat pointedly. Language, Ms. Utonium, she said. This time I had the decency to feel embarrassed for a moment. It hadn't occurred to me that this wasn't exactly the right time or place to curse. Sorry, I said to her. Then I turned to look at the bewildered faces of the jury. But my point still stands. Why else would this guy have to do logical somersaults to try to make her look even remotely decent? On to my next question, Ms. Utonium, White said hurriedly, looking eager to stop me from going any further in that direction. If you don't hate all humans, you do seem to hate Princess in particular. Do you? For a moment, I deliberated over whether answering with tact would be better. Then, deciding against it, I answered challengingly, yeah. And it's justified. Justified how, he asked. By her own behavior, I said. I dared him to twist that. White paused. I just knew he was trying to slither his way around what I'd said, and so I wasn't surprised when he asked next, who else do you hate? I hate all villains, I said simply. That's what Princess is. A villain. That didn't seem to apply to your teammate then, White said slowly, beady snake eyes sparkling. Or should I say, your boyfriend? Where is he, by the way? My eyes widened. Ten thousand brick walls crashed down onto my head at once. My heart stopped beating for a good few seconds. Objection. Jonesy cried from the prosecution table. Your honor, that is irrelevant. The defense has stopped using personal attacks against this. Witness. I heard him stand, and the courtroom roared with tons of voices, at the same time. I looked down at my hands. Spitfire. At what that slimy snake of a lawyer said, this word had suddenly, weirdly appeared in my mind. My heart was beating irregularly, and my brain was throbbing. Suddenly I was so upset that a lump had risen in my throat. Why had him saying that to me made me react so strongly, especially if it was a lie? I didn't have a boyfriend. I wasn't opposed to some fun, but I wasn't even the serious dating type. I preferred to be alone.
No one deserved to deal with my shit on the daily, and it was already enough that my sisters had to. Spitfire. There it was again. What was this word to me? Where did it come from? But why did I feel like I was about to start crying? And why was there some sort of weird recognition inside of me, like something about what he'd said had made sense? The courtroom was still loud, and the judge pounded her hammer thing. Order, she called. Order in the courtroom. Spitfire. He'd said teammate first, before the boyfriend thing. And those rowdy rough dudes, before, the professor had told us that they were our teammates after they stopped being villains. And he didn't lie about that, did he? Why would the professor have lied to us about that? He had no reason to. Mr. White, I agree with the prosecution. What you just said to Ms. Utonium was not only irrelevant to the case, but it was mean-spirited. As I said before, I will not have bullying in my courtroom. Control yourself. Spitfire. Professor had also said that we were romantically involved. And all those pictures existed. Those were proof. Weren't they? How could all of those candid pictures of us together with them exist on the internet if it wasn't true? But Blossom. Her theory. She said she thought that the pictures were all staged and that it was to make the rowdy roughs look good to the public. She said it was fake. And she couldn't have been wrong. Blossom's never wrong. She knows practically everything. She was right. She had to be right. Spitfire. The word kept swirling in my head, uncontrollable, like a skipping CD, playing inside my head over and over and over like rapid gunfire. Spitfire, 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 Spitfire. What was Spitfire? What did it mean? Where did it come from? Ms. Utonium, the clear voice of the judge broke through the repetitions and spiraling thoughts in my head. Are you all right? My mind finally silenced. I was hunched over, my head buried in my hands, and my cheeks wet. I opened my eyes, looking up at her. She had a look of concern on her face. Um, I said finally, sitting up straight again and quickly wiping my cheeks with the back of my hand before anyone could see that they were wet. That was my answer to her, just um, because I was pretty sure I wasn't okay at all. My throat was dry and I felt dizzy. I blurted out, could I have some water? Of course. The judge turned to the bailiff. Bailiff, some water for our witness, please. As the bailiff walked over to the wall where there was a box of prepackaged plastic water bottles, I used this short amount of time to look over at Blossom with wide eyes. She was already staring at me intensely, worried all over her face. She'd already caught on that something was wrong. I pointed at my own forehead, tapping it with my finger, hoping she would tap in with her sister telepathy and understand what I was telling her. Immediately, she turned to Professor and whispered to him, and Professor leaned forward to whisper to Jonesy, who nodded and stood up. The bailiff had come over to the stand, handing me the bottle of water with a look of sympathy on his face. I took it with appreciation, opening the bottle and taking a few gulps out of it straight away. Permission to approach the bench, your honor, said Jonesy in a respectful tone, picking up some papers from the table in front of him. After a moment or two of consideration, the judge answered with a nod, permission granted. 
Jonesy walked over to the judge's bench, looking over at me with a reassuring glance. I hoped that they were trying to get me out of this. I didn't know how many more of the white snake's questions I could take. I set the water bottle down next to my feet. Then, as everyone's attention was on the judge and Jonesy, who I heard was quietly telling her of my memory issues as he held up the papers he'd brought over, I decided to take my chance. Very quietly, as nonchalantly as I could, I reached back into my back pocket for my phone. Thankfully that I'd lowered the brightness of its screen earlier, I hid my phone down low, by my knees, glancing downward casually as I unlocked it. My curiosity had gotten to me, and I had to know what Bubbles' text had said. I had to know right this second where she had gone, and why she wasn't here now, to help us cope with this mess. I opened the text. The first part of the message said, I left to find him. The professor was right. Those pictures of us were real. Don't you remember? Then the second one said, the boys remembered us already. Butch remembers you. I froze. Something in my chest bloomed warm and forceful, spreading through my heart and my brain and my soul. Bubbles didn't lie on the stand like we thought she had. She'd just told the truth, the truth we hadn't remembered. She had remembered what Blossom and I hadn't. Professor had been right, which meant that Blossom was wrong. The pictures weren't staged, they were real. There's nothing I can do. I'm sorry. You should have considered this before. I know I should have informed you of this potential problem before now, your honor, but I was hoping that it wouldn't become an issue. Please don't let my witness be humiliated for something that's out of her control. Sounds of the courtroom around me drifted in and out of my awareness as I slipped my phone back into my pocket. I squeezed my eyes shut again as I felt the puzzle pieces slowly, finally, fitting together. Butch. Butch. Spitfire. Butch remembered me. I was Spitfire. Butch called me Spitfire. Butch wasn't just a villain before. He had eventually become my teammate, with his brothers. And he hadn't just been my teammate. He was also my boyfriend. Butch had not just been some villain years ago. He was made to be my counterpart. He was mine in every possible way. And he always had been. I understand the Utonium girls' difficulties with their memories, said the judge to Jonesy, snapping me out of my own head. And I would like to pardon her for that, but you should have told me about this problem sooner. I looked over at them and suddenly stood up on my feet. It's okay, I said to her, my voice louder than I had intended. Jonesy, the judge, and White all looked at me in surprise. I, just remembered something. Something that I was trying to remember before, I added, trying to clarify as I saw the confusion on their faces. And there's something I'd like to say. I pointed to White. To him. Of course, said the judge to me. She turned to Jonesy. Take a seat, Mr. Jones. Let's let her talk. Reluctantly, after shooting me another glance, Jonesy made his way back over to his table, shrugging at Blossom and Professor and shaking his head. White, looking supremely pleased to have the floor back again, and not even remotely sorry for the several moments of the mess that he'd caused, turned back to me. Something you'd like to say, Ms. Utonium? Yeah, I said to him, sitting and raising my voice again so that everyone would hear. I do have something to say to you. White folded his arms in an amused manner. 
I couldn't wait to wipe that look straight off his face. All right, go ahead, he said. One thing I said earlier was an exaggeration, I admitted to him plainly. About hating all villains. White nodded, looking over at the jury smugly. Was it? Yeah. I haven't hated all villains throughout my whole career. That was an overgeneralization. Roaring with sudden exploding courage, it flew from my mouth. After all, I saved a villain once. This time, when he turned back to me again, there was genuine surprise on his face. There we go. I had him right where I wanted him, posed right in place in my mousetrap, ready to be crushed. Two could play this game. Really? he asked. Really, I said. Well, technically, he was an ex-villain. And he had done plenty of things in the past to justify my hating him. But that was the thing. I didn't actually hate him when I saved him. Not anymore. I shrugged. I hated him at first, when we were kids. As we grew up, though, things got complicated. I still disliked him, but things weren't quite in hatred territory anymore. I had seen him so often, fought him so much, that he had become more like, routine for me. Eventually, I saw battles with him as uninteresting as going to school every day. I fought him because I had to, but my heart wasn't in it anymore. I was used to him. He was more of an annoyance than a threat, at least that's what I had thought. Things had changed between us, but I hadn't realized how much they had changed until he confessed that he was in love with me. The court reacted just as I thought they would, with unanimous shock. Now they all knew exactly who I was talking about. I'd reeled them all in. The flood of memories pulsing through me, all coming back to me at once, I kept going before I could be interrupted. Now, a whole bunch of other things happened after that, dramatic teenage things that none of you need to know about, I said to the room. But just know that his confession changed everything between us. Permanently. And I fought against it. I fought it so hard that I almost ruined my whole life in the process. I fought it up until the moment that I saved him from a suicide attempt. I looked out at all the pale, shocked faces staring up at me. In his moment of vulnerability and true pain, that was the moment that I finally realized that every idea I had about the rowdy roughs was wrong. They weren't indestructible. They weren't brainless anymore, or heartless. They'd grown into their own people. They weren't evil. And this person who I used to call my sworn enemy was his own person, and he understood me better than I have ever understood myself. I paused, heavily, the undeniable truth coming and overwhelming me for a moment. And that was when I realized that I was in love with him too. The courtroom was stirring again. I especially felt the states of shock coming from Professor, Blossom, and Princess. And White was gaping at me, silent. I finished. So, no. I don't hate all villains, not always. As evidenced by the fact that I fell in love with someone who used to be one. But his case was unique. He matured, he owned up to his past mistakes, and his wants and needs. Changed. He grew up. I paused, looking directly over at the princess. She, however, did not change as she grew up. She just got better at hiding how rotten she is on the inside. Princess, black-eyed and flushed in the face, scowled back at me. I turned back to pale-faced white. 
And that, sir, is why my hatred is justified. Because I'm a reasonable superhero, and my true hatred is reserved to those who are truly awful and have no worries about being that way. I leaned back in my seat, smirking at him. Perhaps you can relate to that. Boom. The pale-faced white swung around, practically running from me. The defense has no further questions, he rushed out, retreating to the defense table. The jury was whispering amongst themselves. Princess was staring at her lawyer, like she wanted to rip his head off his shoulders. I'd won us another point against them, and she knew it. Powerpuffs, too. Princess, zero. I smiled widely. I looked up at the judge, and I could tell she was trying really hard not to grin back at me. The witness is dismissed from the stand, she announced in an unbiased voice. I stood up, grabbed the edge of the box surrounding the stand with one hand and launched myself over the top of it, leaping down over the front of the stand unceremoniously. After my sneakers touched onto the wood floors, I bounced over to the lady who was sitting at, I kid you not, a typewriter, typing down every sentence word by word. I'd thought they only did that in the olden days. She looked at me in surprise as I bent down and asked, did you get all that? She had a hand pressed over her heart and was slightly leaning away from me. Yes, she answered finally, looking at me like I'd grown horns. I did. Good. Make sure I sound cool, I said. I plucked my tongue and chucked up two handguns at her as I winked. Then I lightly jogged down the aisle of seats to where Professor and Blossom were also staring at me, but with two entirely different expressions. Professor looked excited and impressed, and Blossom looked horrified and confused. She leaned toward me, her eyes huge the way they get before she launches into a lecture. Buttercup, she said, have you lost your mind? It's funny you say that. Because I actually found it. I nudged the professor, leering. Get it? Realization crossed over his face, and he laughed. Oh, he said, putting a hand on his chest, not unlike that typewriter lady did. And thank goodness you did. Blossom looked at him in confusion, then looked back at me in her narrow-eyed way that made me positive that I was in trouble. Come sit down. What were you thinking, saying all that on the stand? You're acting crazy. I preferred to think of it as acting enlightened. Hmm. About that, I started, leaning in toward her so that I could whisper. I got a split. Cover for me, will you? If they ask, I left to feed wide-eyed orphan kittens at the rescue center. You do best, Red. I reached a hand out and fluffed the top of her hair affectionately, messing it up. Immediately, before she could even comprehend what I'd said, I turned and ran down the aisle, pushing out of the doors of the courtroom just as I heard Blossom exclaim, Buttercup. I probably could have pretended to go to the bathroom, like Bubbles had done, but Blossom and everyone else would have figured out that I was gone anyway. Besides, subtlety wasn't my style. I ran through the courthouse, searching for a door, any door, except for the front doors. And then a door with an emergency exit sign above it caught my eye. I hadn't remembered that emergency exits have alarms until after I'd already pushed it open, the alarm ringing down the hallway and cutting through my eardrums. Oh well, I thought to myself, cringing as I hurried out the door. Might as well go out with a bang. As soon as I was outside of the side of the courthouse, right in the middle of the nicely manicured lawn, in fact, I blasted off into the air. 
An explosion of air followed me, along with a loud crack. Immediately following, I heard several car alarms go off at the same time. Whoops. I was still getting used to these new upgraded powers, and now every time I took off flying too fast, I broke the sound barrier. I had missed flying so much, and for so long, that I couldn't help myself. I'd had so many bad, recent memories associated with flying that I made it a mission to erase those bad memories every time I flew now. To make better memories to replace the bad ones. Because I'd be damned if I let anything take flying from me again. Regardless, I pushed through the sky, phasing through the air molecules at certain points and reappearing yards away. That was something I'd found hard to get a hang of, too. Teleporting was wicked, but doing it too much made me start to feel dizzy and lightheaded. I will get used to it, though. Hopefully. But at least I'd have plenty of opportunities to practice, like now. I knew where he had to be. The moment I knew I had to get out of there, I knew it was to find him. I needed to find him now, or I was going to go crazy, 